TJ, what's new and hip on the socials this week? All right. Um, I said hip. <laughs> I said hip. <laughs> <laughs> and the and guy. Oh my gosh. You all right? No. <laughs> <laughs> you sure? Oh my gosh. <sighs> <clears throat> Welcome to the Plastic Posse podcast for episode 26. Plastic Posse are four guys who all share a passion for scale modeling. TJ Holler from Virginia, John Bonani from the Berg in Pennsylvania, at least for a minute, and Doug Smith and myself, Scott Gentry, both from Utah. So TJ, Doug, how are you guys? Pretty good. I am really, really good. Really, really. Unfortunately, we are missing uh, John. He's in the middle of some relocation efforts and a little bit busy tonight so we'll catch him next time around guys we are rapidly closing in on one year that we have been doing our podcast we want to really thank all of you listeners out there for the amazing support that we have received we have been preparing a very special episode to celebrate this milestone and we'll have more details for you on that soon that's right scott We are really excited about our first year, and no lie, our anniversary episode will definitely be one you won't want to miss. Speaking of excitement, we are excited to be sponsored by Tankcraft. Tankcraft makes the highest quality products for the discerning scale modeler, and we are proud that they are now an official sponsor of the Triple P. So who is Tankcraft? Tankcraft makes beautiful self-healing cutting mats that will take your bench to the next level. Not only do they look amazing, they are made to stand up to your toughest builds. Constructed from heavy-duty laminated 3mm thick PVC, they have excellent self-healing and cut-resistant properties. But the best part is the beautifully rendered blueprint-like drawings of World War II vehicles printed up on the front. Up armor your bench by adding a mat with a Panther or a Tiger One in Panzer Gray, or a T-34-85 or M-4A-3 Sherman in military green. They come in two sizes, 12 by 18 and 18 by 24 inches, with an inch grid and a centimeter border for handy reference. Not a tank guy, not a problem. Tankcraft has you covered with their Aircrafter Series modeler mats. Take your bench to new heights with the mighty P-47D Thunderbolt. P-51D Mustang, or the venerable Spitfire Mark 5B. We've got an exclusive offer for Plastic Posse listeners only. Use the code POSSE15 at checkout for a 15% discount. So head on over to tankcraft.com. That's tankcraft.com. Hey, your bench called. It wants a new mat. So, in episode 24, we asked our listeners to send in photos of their bench along with why an awesome new tank craft mat would help them spruce up their bench. We had a lot of great entries, and ultimately, in episode 25, we announced Mike McElhaney as our lucky winner. Mike has received his awesome new tank craft mat, and has gone a long way to sprucing up his bench, although I believe he admitted that he just put it on top of the mess for the time being, at least. <laughs> at least it's hiding in the mess, so we can't, you know... 
baby steps, baby steps. That's right. Way to go, Mike. Yep. And you can check out his before and after pictures over on the Plastic Posse Facebook page. The Triple P is also sponsored by Sean's Custom Model Tools, makers of the Goodman Models Super Sanding Blocks. As we've been saying, these blocks are an essential finishing tool for your modeling projects. These blocks allow you to have controlled precision sanding that yields fantastic results. They come in a range of grits from 80 to 600 grit and are perfect for many different modeling jobs. If you don't have a set, what are you waiting for? Head on over to www.goodmanmodels.com and order yourself a set. You'll be glad you did. Well, guys, since the Tank Craft Mat giveaway was so much fun, I say we have another giveaway for this episode. Let's give away a complete set of the awesome Sean's Custom Model Tools Super Sanding Blocks to a lucky posse member. So if you don't have a set of the super sanding blocks, send us an email at plasticpossepodcast at gmail.com and we'll have a random drawing and announce the lucky winner in episode 28. Thanks, Doug. That's going to be awesome for a lucky listener to get a set of those super sanding blocks. I know I've said it multiple times, but I'm a huge fan of them and they come in handy on my bench. And funnily enough, I find myself using them more and more now than I thought I ever would. And I thought they were handy before that. A related note, if you can make it out to the IPMS Nats, stop by and see us as we plan on having some more giveaways there as well. Episode 26 of the Triple P is also sponsored by Grant Mayberry, Darren McGinnis, Eric Daglish, along with Posse Outriders, Terry, Paul, Ethan, Jamie, Steve, and Rick. If you're enjoying our podcast and would like to help sponsor the Posse, it's pretty easy. Just head over to our website, classicpossepodcast.buzzsprout.com. In the upper right-hand corner of the website, there's a heart icon. Just click that icon, and then you can donate any amount you would like. Or if you don't want to donate, that's okay. You can still show your support for the Plastic Posse by taking a few minutes to leave us a review wherever you get our podcast from. Five-star reviews really help us get the Posse out to more listeners who are interested in modeling podcasts. I want to just say here, we could use a little help. If we could get just a few more reviews on Apple Podcasts, we'd be at 100 and we could use some more reviews on the other platforms as well, like Stitcher and Google, some of those other ones. So if you wouldn't mind taking a few minutes to leave us that review, we would really appreciate it. As most of you know, the Posse is just one of several scale modeling podcasts. Stuart Clark of Scale Model Podcast created a website where all of these different podcasts that all relate to scale modeling and even some blogs submit their information and then everyone can view all of these in one easy place. So you're going to just head on over to modelpodcasts.com and check it out. You'll find all the information there for all of the scale modeling podcasts and blogs. For today's episode, our main segment features an aircraft modeling roundtable. Scott moderated a group featuring Chris Sieber, a.k.a. Luftrom72, Chris Hale Wallace, a.k.a. Model Airplane Maker, Jim Bates, a.k.a. A Scale Canadian TV, and John Vitkus as well as me. We discussed a wide range of topics regarding aircraft modeling and everything that goes along with it. We also feature another Modeler's Minute segment with Ian Bonner, a.k.a. iBones Models. Don't forget about our three ongoing Plastic Posse group builds, which are featuring TIE Fighters, the Rifles Models T-3485 and 135th scale, and the Tamiya Edward 148 scale Spitfire Mark I slash 2 build. Now, remember, none of these builds have a hard end date, but we would like to have a soft end date of August 16th, 2021, which, as you may know, is the Monday before the Nats in Las Vegas. If you're planning on attending the Nats, please, please, please bring your completed group build entry, even if you don't plan on entering in the contest, just so the posse 
can see it in person and just give us the opportunity to talk to you about it. This especially applies to our Ryfield T3485 group build because that one we would actually like to display as many of those as we can. So please, if you're coming to Nats and you built that awesome model, bring it with you. We're going to enter it in a display. That way everyone can see it and be part of the posse. So Doug, what kind of feedback did we get from the last episode? Well, we got we got a quite a few. Let's start off from Rob Perlman. Hey guys, I'm amazed at the amount of content you jam into your episodes. I'm glad you guys brought up the modern tanks don't get weathered conversation. Of course they do. All armor that took part in the Middle East, forever word, just lived over there. Crews cycled in and out, but the vehicle stayed in the theaters. There are so many publicly available pictures of modern armor, dirty and dinged up as hell. I have three magnum opus builds. Is that allowed? That's what he asked. Yeah, of course it's allowed. Number one, the Bandai MG Sazabi Ka with the uh, Yujiao land resin conversion. It's not cheap, but wow, it's impressive. The Tamiya 132nd F-16 in Alaskan aggressor splinter camo with a full weapons rack. And a Canadian Leopard 2A-6M with a Barracuda Barracuda armor. P.S. I actually think you guys have a good thing going with your long episodes. I usually listen over a couple of days in the morning before work, or I listen on my commute to and from work. You have lots of smaller segments, so it's easy to stop and then pick up later. Thanks, Rob. So I want to jump in here real quick, because this was brought up on Facebook, and someone had asked questions about longer episodes, and uh, Rob highlighted the fact that with modern technology, (laughs) you can pause things and then come back to them later. Just want, just want to remind everyone of that. You don't have to sit down and listen to anything all at one time. Just a helpful reminder. And as far as those Magnum Opus builds go, man, a, a, an F-16 in the Alaskan scheme with a full weapons loadout on it, that would be awesome. I would love to see that. Well, and you can't go wrong with Canadian Leopards. They're the best. They're the best Leopards. I don't care. I said it. We all have a right to our opinion. <laughs> Not that I have an argument. I don't have a dog in that fight. So, <laughs> all right. Brandon Walters, Guelph, Canada, writes in to say, Hey, Posse, wonderful topic about Magnum Opus builds. For me, aside from trying to just make a good model, I've had this idea bouncing around in my head after reading Pierre Klosterman's book, The Big Show. The only sticking point for me is where to find so many pilot figures, in particular, ones without their gear on. Darren McGinnis, a new listener, writes in to say, Hey guys, I sat at my bench listening to episode 23 and enjoyed it very much. I identify with Kevin Kelly as I build models for the same reason as him. It's good to hear others finding health benefits from this great hobby. Your two other guests were equally engaging and I was impressed with Mike Rinaldi's outlook on the hobby. As always, the production team is doing a great job. Thanks, Scott. Good job. Thanks for keeping me company at the bench, fellas. Cheers. Ian McCauley from Ottawa, Canada is back. Hi, fellas. I feel compelled to weigh in on the current online discussions of the problems associated with podcasts that are three hours in length. Unfortunately, I too have a problem with your three hour long podcast. My problem is that the podcast is typically over after only three hours. This means that after splitting up the three hours over a few days of listening while driving around to see my patients, The podcast ends and I have to wait the better part of two weeks for the next episode to drop. This is unacceptable and obviously due to laziness and poor planning on your part. (laughs) I feel that I'm within my rights as a consumer to demand that all of you drop everything extraneous to the podcast, jobs, family, bench time, sleep, 
in order to put out a three hour long podcast on a daily basis solely to satisfy me. If you need help to achieve this goal, please don't ask me. I'm far too busy. Thanks, Ian. <laughs> in other words, your enthusiasm for the hobby, interesting and well thought out interviews and camaraderie are a testament to the amount of effort you put into your podcast, episode after episode. I always learn something and I'm always entertained. When I listen, the time just flies by and leaves me wanting more. Keep up the good work and don't sweat the naysayers. P.S. I know a guy who doesn't like ice cream, even the most expensive ice cream. He says that it's too cold. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Uh, Ian, you're my new hero. Just just saying. Tom's Stuff Scale Models on Instagram says, Hey, I just wanted to let you know I really enjoy your podcast. I've been listening for a few months now and have more or less caught up with the episodes, especially the interviews with some of the armor guys such as Adam Wilder, Mike Rinaldi, and of course the one and only Uncle Night Shift really made me eager to produce some great models. It's great to have your podcast on while at the bench. Cheers and keep up the good work. Thanks, Tom. We have some news that will be interest to you later on. As always, we really, really appreciate that feedback. And you can send that feedback to us over on our Plastic Posse Facebook page or at Plastic Posse Podcast at gmail.com. So keep sending that in. We really appreciate it. Well, it's time for the latest installment of our Modeler's Minute segment. This time, TJ and I sat down with a good friend of ours, Ian Bonner, a.k.a. iBones Models. Ian is a terrific armor modeler, and he's always fun to talk to. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I think you guys will too. Welcome in to another Plastic Posse interview. Today, TJ and I are joined by our dog, Ian Bonner, from iBones Models. What's up, Ian? What's going on, guys? Appreciate you joining us today. So, Ian, for those people out there that aren't familiar with you, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I'm from uh, good old Columbus, Ohio. Been modeling here, uh, I guess, more to the, the level we're at. We're all kind of all at right now. Probably last four or five-ish years, recently got back into the hobby. I mean, that's kind of... The story of that everybody's got is, oh, we're getting back into the hobby, and I used to do it as a kid. Pretty much, uh, you know, it's been doing this hot and heavy here for a minute. I, you know, kind of don't do anything, uh, have no half measures, just jump right back into it. And now this is kind of all I do. So, <laughs> so we uh, we kind of initially started to get to know you um, on SMCG, and you're one of the mods over there. Yep, Will, um, Will and uh, Matt made the mistake of hiring me to be some of the help there and, you know, get a badge and, uh, you know, help run stuff over there. So it's kind of, you know, interesting being with, you know, around these guys because, I mean, you know, these everybody's fantastic modelers over there and uh, just getting to see some of the, the model stuff and, you know, some of the discussions that, you know, some of these other podcasts are having, seeing this actually happen here, you know, the whole gatekeeping of the hobby and all that kind of stuff, like, being a moderator, you get to kind of see all of that, get kind of the inside scoop of all the, the stuff that goes on. But it's it's great fun, you know, and it's uh, definitely being around those guys. It's definitely motivation to try to keep doing better and better and never just get complacent. And then you've got your Facebook page. Tell us a little bit about iBones Models. I do. So uh, about a maybe a year or two ago, I decided all the cool kids were making modeling pages. And I think my 
Facebook friends themselves, like family and friends that I know and know in person were kind of getting burnt out of me posting, you know, models all the time. Cause I mean, you know, you always want to show off your stuff. So you start accumulating model buddies and stuff. And then you figure, well, you know, I got enough model buddies on here. Maybe I should give my actual real family and friends and coworkers a, a break and just decided to make my own page. So I've made it iBones models, which is uh, a lot of people have said, oh, Ibanez or something like that, like the, the musical instrument company, but it's iBones because Ian I Bones because my last name is spelled B-O-N-N-E-R. So I've got plenty of jokes over the years of uh, that. So my dad's nickname that my mom used to call him was Boney. So, you know, just kind of figured out oh, high bones models. Boom. There we go. Got a name. <laughs> Speaking of your dad, is he the one that kind of introduced you to the hobby originally? He was. So my dad built a bunch of uh, 135th scale models. Like he was primarily an armor modeler, so Apple didn't really fall far from the tree in that regard. He used to do it in his 20s. So I remember as a kid, he had a storage unit for you know some odds and ends and stuff. And in there was a big box of his completed models. I remember being a kid, he was, you know, thinking, well, these are just sitting here. So I'd always, if we'd ever had to go out to the storage unit, I'd get one. Of course, being, you know, a five, six, seven-year-old kid, all the the guns would get all snapped off and the wheels would get snapped off. I remember he and I built the 148 scale Ravel B-17. We built that hind that they make a while back, back when we lived in California, which is where I grew up. One day, uh, you know, kind of like most kids my age at the time, I'm 30, you know, I guess to give an idea when my childhood was so pokemon cards were all the rage so we go to the mall to the little game store to get my pokemon cards and there's these guys there playing this game with models on the table we're thinking oh what's this you know we start finding out well, it's warhammer 40,000, where you build models and you get to play a game with them so then i ended up getting into that uh, you know a second third grade dad got into it you know pretty hardcore there with his uh, first army was an orc army Going from there, we moved to Ohio. Um, he There's a little local hobby store near us called Hobbyland that used to be there. And then my dad basically started running the Warhammer 40K night there. When he was doing that, I, of course, got into that. I got into Flames of War and got into, you know, that a pretty stout actual, you know, like Tamiya and Ravel and Trumpeter and all that. Had a pretty stout selection of that. So I started kind of dipping into that a little bit. Next thing you know, they're, you know, high school's ending and college is getting there. So stereotypically start chasing women you know at that point and there's other priorities but christmas of 18 out of the blue my mom surprised me for christmas a uh, airbrush because i kind of got out of it because i was thinking oh i want to get an airbrush at some point but they're expensive well one christmas boom i open up an airbrush and that was basically getting me back in the hobby at that point so now we're here <laughs> so is your mom and your dad All right yeah, my uh, mom, I like to say, uh, so my mom passed away here at the end of June. Basically, you know, we, we like to say, oh, yeah, you know, dad planted the seed and then mom kind of let it break out, let the tree grow a little bit more. So, you know, if people check out my page, I've been working on, uh, to me, as 148 scale Easy 8 because that was uh, a kit that she got me where, you know, we, we told her, like, because she was like, well, what, what scale models kits do you do? And I'm like, oh, I do 135th stuff. And it's like, okay, cool. And then she was like, this is right, right? And I'm like, oh, it's 148. That's fine. You know, this is before I started really wanting to get into 148 stuff. So she got that. And now that, you know, she's passed, I think, well, you know, now it's time to knock this one out of the park. Like, it's going to be a be a good one. You know what I mean? So so since you already brought up the 
48 scale Sherman. Let's go ahead and start talking about that one. Yeah. Just kind of give us a rundown of, I guess, where, where are you drawing inspiration from? Where do you plan on taking it? Uh, you know, that's just sort of basic, you know, model stuff, I suppose. So um, with that kit, back when I got initially got into the hobby, and it's great, and Facebook, you know, as a side note, it's great for this because you end up getting your, your time hop, your memories and all that. You can kind of start going back on the stuff I was posting and seeing like, you know, oh, memory from 2018 or something that various things popping up. Well, Mike Rinaldi's Tank Art 2 was the first model-specific book I ever bought. And I think a lot of people are like that, where tank art was kind of the thing that kind of pushed them a little bit to get to that next level. And so I f- absolutely fell in love with his 148-scale Pershing that he did, where he did the lacquer thinner dry brush technique and you know just various OPR and like how Olive Drab, which is a big part of that book, being Allied Armor, that I fell in love with that. So back when I actually, ironically enough, first met John Bonani, they have, we have this uh, little regional IPMS thing here called uh, BlizzCon. And so with that book, I bought uh, the Dragon slash Cyber Hobby M4A375W, the wet storage one, bought that and I tried it on there used you know the lighter acrylic color over top of the tamiya od color you know because that od green by tamiya is a nice dark rich od green getting off track here but that 148 scale sherman i decided well i did that when i took it to blizzcon and i placed you know not that you know these awards are anything to write home about but i you know first show out i entered that in there and i got a bronze in world war ii armor which you know obviously that's a pretty big category there so Met John, you know, and I decided, well, you know, at this point, I'm going to try to redo that because I don't have TJ and I were talking not too long ago about trying to retake some pictures of that model. Fortunately, it's gone. I have no idea where it went, which I'm kind of bummed about. Uh, Figured, well, might as well just do it again. So I'm drawing a lot of uh, I'm using AK real color instead of life color over top of the OD green because TJ also got me rolling on that where. That, that life color OD, or not life color, uh, AK real color, OD green. It's amazing. Chef's kiss, as he says. Definitely works the same. So, you know, it's kind of an unconventional technique. So I'm, I'm doing that. I, I uh, enhanced the cast texture on the turret. Not that it needs it really, but decided to do that. Making it definitely look lived in. It depended on the debate whether or not OD green actually chipped or not. You know, I'm kind of just rather It than, definitely did. It did. It, I don't care what anyone says. It, it 100% did. Pictures yeah, and that's kind of what I'm thinking too, you know? So, I mean, it was one of those, well, I'll make it look lived in, but I'm not going to do the full board chipping because I, I can't stop myself. I love that technique too much, right? And uh, making it look like a graveyard, you know, derelict type deal. Um, so I'm doing that, you know, I'm uh, thinking in my head, you know, it's an easy eight Germany slash Belgium end of the war type deal. Lots of mud. So trying to be subdued, but I'm, I'm having fun with it. I would like to point out that the previous Sherman you were discussing that plays bronze, it beat John Bonani. I don't think John placed in that category. I think he's has said that at least more than once. Oh boy, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, I'm I guess pretty that sure makes sense. He was saying something not too long ago that said he had at least one thing entered in that same category and you you placed and he did not. <laughs> oh nice man. Nice way to kick off your competition, you know. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, and it's uh, it's crazy too because you know we were talking about I don't have that model anymore. You know, you guys were the ones that you know that post you did recently on your Facebook page. Hey, you know, what's your photography setup look like? Well, you know, it's one thing in this hobby, particularly with you know we always talk about how social media impacts this particular hobby for better or worse. I think that kind of made picture taking and the ability to properly convey what your work looks like to the world and how to to do that efficiently. I think that's definitely, you know, part of the hobby now because I always joke with, you know, Will Patterson and, and Matt and uh, you know, Tony and the other guys at Skillmars Critique Group, whenever I they made me buy a DSLR. They didn't make me, but you know, I needed a needed a Nikon D thirty four hundred to take good pictures and we always used to joke, you know, saying, looking at the receipt that says 550 bucks for a camera. I'm like, I just wanted to build models better. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's as far as uh, wanting to take the pictures of stuff and thinking, man, I should take pictures because the pictures I've got are on that page. But you can definitely tell I was not a good photographer at the point. Uh, you know, they're not terrible, but, you know, I definitely think they could be better. So kind of a bummer, but. What can you do? Well, like you said, it's uh, it's. I mean, it's it's something that we have to have as part of our toolbox that a generation before us didn't have to have. Because the great part about the modeling community online is we collaborate, right? You know, we've had we've had zooms where all you know all of us treadheads are getting together and building together and talking and everything, and it's that or it's a Facebook post or it's an Instagram post. But that's what we do versus, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, it was more, you know, maybe we were on a modeling forum or, you know, we grabbed the most recent issue of Fine Scale Modeler. I think it's a lot better. But yeah, we, we've just got to have that that tool stack. Oh, for sure. Cameras are not even just cameras, just good pictures are vitally important. And, and I've seen the argument that it's, oh, you know, you shouldn't have to do that because it's just trying to impress people on social media or whatever. And I mean, yeah, sure. That's important, uh, you know, to me, like not necessarily impressed, but like I want my work to look like what I, I think it looks like to the strangers on the internet. But at the same time, like I don't carry my models around in my pocket. And if someone <laughs> wants to like see a model, like I'll show them a good picture of it. I'm not like, Oh, here, let me, here, let me pull out this, this Sherman that I have in my, in my back pocket. <laughs> They're all in the trunk of my car. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, you know, why would you, if you're trying to evangelize the hobby, which I know I do, and I know I'm sure a lot of people do, like, why would you want to show someone a picture that looks like crap or like doesn't accurately portray like what we do and or what, what our products look like? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, just basic level, good photography is, it's important but on more than one level. It makes you a better modeler. I think I think anyone, everyone can agree with that. That has tried it. Camera of truth. Yeah, seriously. And in the in the vein of SMCG, for instance, I mean, it seems like every new member when they come in and they make their first post, you usually have to kind of coach them through their photography because they'll say, "Hey, what can I improve on?" But that you know, they don't have pictures that allow people to really give them an effective critique. And so, you know, they get taught about, okay, you need some more light. You need to make sure your photos are in focus and get a little closer. And then it's a lot easier to look at that and say, okay, well, yeah, here's what I see. You know, maybe try this differently or, or whatever. For sure. That's the one thing, you know, that's the first piece of feedback that Will Patterson ever gave me. I think the first thing I ever posted, one of the first things I ever posted in SMCG was my Whippet when I first made it four years ago when i think around when i joined i want to say will's only comment was yeah, it looks pretty good but these pictures are way too small and i looked at them like oh man they are they're like not i thought a 900 pixel 
picture was huge. Now, I mean, I keep mine routinely in the 2000 at least because, you know, the internet will shrink them down. Then you can just look at them blown up. Yeah. Keep your pictures big. Listener PSA. Make sure if you're uploading your your uh, pictures to Facebook, you turn on HD upload in the settings because that will allow you to post the giant, big, pretty pictures and stuff. Because otherwise, it'll like TJ was saying, make it small, make it hard for people to see. You know your fantastic work you're throwing out there, and you know we all want to see what you're doing and look what you're working on. Definitely turn on HD upload. <laughs> well, since we were talking about 48th scale, let's take a step down talk about my this is my new personal favorite 172nd scale because you recently did that a scott what is that thing it's some big russian behemoth t28 yep t28 i want to say t26 but that didn't sound right so you recently did a 172nd scale t28 and it's pretty damn good tell us about it well i definitely appreciate that so that one was trumpeters 172nd scale t28 you'll kind of get the vibe from me you know, getting to know me, I love Russian armor. That's that's pretty much my sweet spot is beat up, shades of green, dusty, rusty, covered in oil, like all that kind of stuff. I love it. I love Russian armor. So naturally, a uh, local hobby shop to me here in Columbus called Hobbyland, right when they moved, because they had moved across town, I went to kind of their soft opening and saw that they had some trumpeter stuff. And that's where my eyes naturally go, because being a Russian armor guy, of course, trumpeters, your go-to. Saw these little kits here and I said, ooh, 172nd scale, that's Braille scale. Let's try to give that a shot. So, you know, being relatively cheap, I, uh, you know, figured out why not support your local hobby shop. So I picked it up. And then uh, one day I was uh, sitting at work on a Saturday by myself, just covering a shift. I figured I'll bring a little kit to fiddle with fell together in an afternoon and like four hours ended up during the time where some of the listeners may remember and we've obviously have talked about it john banani's color modulation fiasco where he did his uh, t34 by border models and did that beautiful modulation because that guy's got such a talent for that did fantastically executed but of course the internet went ballistic and decided you know the discussion well that's not how light really works and all of that so i figured out oh, you know it's small i'll cut my teeth on that i'll give it a shot so I, I modulated it first time ever and then started weathering the thing and man tj you you're doing some awesome 172nd scale stuff so you can agree the stuff we're used to doing on 135th and 148th is too big for what we need to do in 172nd scale started uh messing with that getting used to it i think it came out pretty well i actually used a little bit of pigments on it you know got to keep i don't use it too much anymore and i think a lot of people in the hobby are kind of getting away from that to an extent but it's a tool in the toolbox for me you know it gives you something else to you know an effect you know so i wanted to keep those skills sharp i think it turned out pretty well i mean i don't you know i hate tooting my own horn but you know i was i was happy with how it turned out no toot away toot away <laughs> you know ian about that build one thing i'll say is when you look at the photographs and, it, and and i guess this hits your photography skill as well as your modeling but the model doesn't look 172nd scale and to me that's one of the the highest compliments you can get you look at the photo and you think is that 135th scale <laughs> I did have some people say that. So uh, we have, uh, you know, and I keep referencing talking to, to Will and Matt, we have, you know, the, the back room, the, the admins chat, so to speak, for SMCG. So, you know, I, I talk to them, you know, almost daily. And, you know, we always joke, you know, the whole banana for scale meme where Matt started putting that little ceramic or whatever. He's got banana, wherever he got that from, he's putting that <laughs> in photos. 
you know, we you know used to joke like, man, like, isn't it great where you can make this model and people don't know what scale it is until you put something next to it? Because that's, you know, when I was doing the, the 172nd thing, because I think there was somebody somewhere made that 135th scale 88 by Tamiya with all the guys on it. And he knocked it out of the park, but he bought one of those comically large Zippo lighters and put it next to it. So it looked really, really tiny. And of course, then he said, well, no, it's actually, you know, this fake lighter. But we've always joked and saying, man, we should get those like old comically large pennies and put it next to, you know, our models to make them look 172nd and all that. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, you know, it's being tiny, man. That's tiny scales are fun. They're, they go together quick. You know, I'm, I'm totally, we have a, a mutual friend, Aaron Cuck for Aaron Cuck Armor. He's all about 148 scale and TJ's all about doing his 172nd now. And it's like, they go together so quick. I mean, they're just, they're fun little kits, you know, and they're cheap relatively. They don't take a week to construct. And I mean, depending on obviously Uncle Night Shift doing his uh, Syrian T-55 took a little bit longer, but you know, in general, you can, you can knock them out pretty quick. Well, Ian, one of my favorite builds of yours is one that you knocked out in a weekend so we were on the, uh, back in March, I think it was, we were on the 48 and 48 for Models for Heroes. You did a a 148 scale German elephant, right? I did. I uh, That was kind of my first uh, foray into 148 with just seeing how quick they go together. It was, gosh, was that back in March? I think it was, but... Yeah. Yeah, whenever we did that, you know, I remember ordering it and thinking, man, all the elephant kits that I want to do, because I want to do one at 135th eventually. I mean, they're all 50, 60 bucks, 70 bucks, depending on who you get it from. You know, when I bought that, I was like, ooh, that's cool. And then fell together pretty quick and typical to me of fashion, that suggestion of a friend, you know, hey, get the Monroe Purdue paper Zimmer it. That worked out pretty well, threw that on there. And it, I mean, it, it fell together. It was uh, definitely great. I tried a little bit of modulation there with, you might see some of the work in progress pictures I got where I was trying that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, I'm sitting here as we're talking, I'm looking at, to me, a 148 T55, the Panther, the Easy 8, the T3485, like I kind of went crazy with it. Definitely. Uh, that, that was uh, that was a fun kit. And I, I definitely recommend that to anybody who likes German armor. I got I to gotta tell you, I thought you were a little crazy when we started that because I mean, I wussed out and built a TIE fighter, which had like 11 parts. But you took a, a an armor piece and then you threw Zimmerit on top of that. I'm like, oh man, that's that's going to cost him. But man, you pulled it off. <laughs> so I, I jokingly say that I cheated on that because that technically, I think the deadline was like 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. on a Sunday. Technically, I got done about an hour later because I had a decal disaster. So to me, a decals are pretty thick. Like, so you know, that's not an uncommon complaint. Well, in those braille, you know, not braille scale, it's 148th, but you know, the small scales, that step that the decal film can do can show pretty well. So trick with that, if you don't have a bunch of details that it's laying around, you cover it in uh, aqua gloss and then like flooded on there so there's like a mound and then you sand that flush and then boom that fixes the decal well i love lacquer clear coats and lacquer clear coats and freshly sprayed aqua gloss from like an hour prior don't get along if anybody's curious instant instant frost boom so i'm you know i have this model that i'm damn near done with at like 6 30 and then boom now i have to redo that so Thankfully, like three weeks prior, I got a silhouette portrait 
and I managed to, I have no idea how I just thought of this, but I took a picture of it, emailed the picture to myself, cut a mask with it and resprayed it. And then I came in at about 49 hours because that took, that set me back a little bit. So I cheated. So don't tell the guys that. No, international dayline, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, I drove to Indiana to get it done. So I crossed the dateline. <laughs> Now that that was, uh, I don't know if you enjoyed it as much as we did, but I thought that forty-eight hour build was a lot of fun. It's it pushes you because you really start to understand what is important in your workflow. You can find out, you know, and there's. I always hate the term cutting corners because there's really like with this hobby, there's no cutting corners. It's whatever you want to put into it, but. Doing a 48 CL kit in 48 hours really gives you an idea of, well, what's important? What looks good? Like, what do I want to get out of this? And so pin wash, pin washes are very, very important. You know, so that's that's a good step. Then you start thinking, well, dirt, grime and chipping, like, where do I want to do? Do I want to be subdued with it? Do I want to go crazy? So it's just you really start to think about, I could do this, but it's going to take time. Afterward, you look back and say, well, man, I built this in 48 hours maybe i don't need to do the other stuff maybe i'm happy with how it all kind of pans out i mean it's it it was really a one of those zen really find yourself (laughs) experiences doing that (laughs) you know tj was talking on a thread a couple of maybe this weekend or the weekend before about his abrams and somebody was saying man how are you knocking all these builds out you know he talked about start with good kits don't get hung up in minutia limit your color palette John and TJ and Doug and I, we talk about things like planning your build out. Not every build does have to be a contest masterpiece, air quotes. There are things that you can strategically decide either to focus on or just disregard if you want. It's definitely, you know, dependent on how far out you want to go. I mean, this this Sherman, you know, I've, I've been messing with this. So that was, I built it. Man in the High Castle, like the last season of it had just come out because I remember watching it while building this. So whenever that was, I mean, that, that was like, what, 19? Yeah, it was like before COVID. So, you know, and that, that I remember doing it back then, but I kind of threw it in a box and I was like, oh, you know, I'll deal with this later. I got other stuff I want to do. And now as far as hobbies go, like I'm realizing, like, I don't like having a bunch of stuff just sitting around waiting to be done, doing a bunch of different projects all at once because you got, okay, I built this. Now it's back in the box. Well, I got primer on this. I'm going to set this aside. Like, I just can't do that. It stresses me out. Going off of that, though, with this Sherman, you know, it was like one of those, well, I'm going to buckle down and do it because it's, you know, an important sentimental model to me now. And so I wanted to go all out and I've been working on this thing since like May. And so I'm, I'm finally getting here, you know, where it's starting to approach the finish line. But then there's other kits where it's just like, boom, I'm going to throw this together in a weekend. I'm going to, the, uh, we did uh, in a group build in the Scale Models Critique group called the Rusty Dusty T55. When Tamiya's 148 T55 had just come out, we decided, oh, let's do a group build. And that was back in like April or March of 2020. Like COVID was just happening. So, of course, we had a great group build turnout because we had all these people were in lockdown. I, I have pictures of that on my on my page. And I, I didn't go all out with that, you know, to an extent. Like if you look, there's a picture uh, looking kind of on the wheel well and behind the treads. Didn't really go nuts with it. It was uh, that was just kind of where I wanted to be at it. But it just it just comes down to what you want out of it. Do what you want to do. Now I, I will say I have found there is something to be had with having a bunch of projects uh, like ready to go. I used to be stressed out about it too, and then I just was like, nah, just not gonna let it bother me anymore. And that's part of the reason why I've able been able to finish as many as I have this year because I would say probably half of them were already started. One was already painted the ISU 152, but the other ones 
yeah, it, it was, it's actually kind of nice to just grab something off the shelf that's essentially ready to go and you don't have to put too much effort into it. So that would be my advice. Just let it go, man. It, like, that's why I have like three kits in progress right now. So when I don't feel like painting one of them, I'll just grab one of the other ones. That is a good point. Cause then it comes down to what do you want to get out of the hobby? Like what's your fun part, you know? And like uh, the, the sprue cutters union, you know, their most recent one, they were talking about some people love building some people then who love building might not put a ton of effort into the, the painting because they don't want to other people buildings, the pain in the ass or, you know, they, they want to just uh, paint and weather, you know? And so that's, that's actually a really good point, DJ. Cause they, yeah, you could totally just, I love, I'm in a building mood. So I'm going to build a couple things and then boom, they go away in the boxes and then I want to paint something, but I don't want to build anything. Boom. There you go. Well, that's, that's kind of what I've been finding too. Cause I've been, as we know, and it's been mentioned multiple times on a pretty good pace as of late. And I found like within these last couple of weeks, like I've just feel more like building. So that's why I've been building a whole lot. And obviously I went through a, a phase where like, I'm just going to paint as much crap as I can. And I did. Yep. I, I'm not letting you get out of here until I ask about your Char B1. I'm a huge French armor fan. In my mind, it's your masterpiece so far. Tell us a little bit about that build. That build was Tamiya's 135th scale Char B1. I love, and like Scott, you and I are kind of the same. We both love esoteric French armor from the inner war period. It's definitely, I'm loving that there's French armor coming out. So when that kit came out, I had to have it. So my dad, you know, speaks French a little bit, you know, he being the the hobby guy with me, uh, I think he got me that kit as well. Like when I got the, the Sherman. So ironically enough, you can kind of see the theme there. If you've got tank art too, there's also Mike Rinaldi did a Char B1 in that as well. So using that kind of as my roadmap, I threw the kit together. I did some cast texture, you know, for those curious, I was using the AK easy cast, like relic HD type white stuff. I've subsequently started using uh Tamiya putty, but with that, I did the cast texture on the turret. I did the cast texture on the hull uh, where the, the howitzer bulb is on the front. Looking at references, which obviously is an important thing to do. You don't necessarily have to follow one verbatim if you don't want to. Just get an idea what these things do. These things puke oil down the sides of them. It's great. They grease the tracks up. You could definitely see that was some inspiration for Warhammer 40k tanks where the tread's going all the way around. You know, I guess those are the English Mark IVs or whatever. So I started going, uh, you know, down that road following tank art three or two rather decided to take that to blizzcon met john there john was like you have to bring the char when you come and so put that out there and then second one i the second show i'd ever been to i won gold in world war ii armor for that one so that one was uh, definitely it was fun it was a challenge it took me a long time to try to get it where i wanted to get it, it, it i used that iconic french scheme where it was the black outlines around the cam the, the camo blobs so to speak everybody asked how do you do that man how'd you do that people will say use the the paint marker use a sharpie jay's work paint mask set makes a mask set for that i cannot recommend it enough you will not be happy with it doing it any other way it's time consuming but god did it turn out treat like it was, it was a treat to you so i definitely it was one probably one of my favorites I still have that one. I'm going to take it to Nat. So anybody who's going to nationals, you get to see what, what Scott's talking about. I'm looking forward to seeing that in person. What are you taking to Nats? I've been trying to figure out what I'm going to take. I messaged the group today. I'm like, oh, I don't know what I want to take. But do you know what you're taking? Most importantly is I have to take T3485 by Ryfield Models because that's what Plastic Posse Boys are taking. That's the group build. That is the one. 
So that's that's coming first and foremost. Taking the Char, I think. I'm kind of scared flying with these because obviously I'm not within driving distance, which I would trust my driving better than an airline. John Bonani says that if you you can figure out how to make it a carry on and take some stuff, I'm thinking I'm going. I'm thinking small this year, so I'm going to take the Char. Doesn't have a lot of you know spiky bits to bust off. T34 doesn't take the probably the Sherman that I'm working on because I should have that done here within the next week or so. I'm going to take the 170 seconds scale t28 maybe take the 148 scale elephant i don't know i haven't decided yet <laughs> but those definitely you know i've got a i got a lineup here so far you know mike was actually talking today in his live stream about when you do that if you're going to carry them on the plane make sure that you use clear plastic containers and then you use cushion inside of there and then the tsa guys will, will be able to see into the container so they don't have to open it up and pick it up. And, you, you know, you can tell them, hey, that's a model. I'd rather you didn't touch it, but then they'll be able to see it. I think John Vanani uses, uh, if I remember correctly, he uses like the clear plastic totes, but he uses that crinkle paper for like bedding for small rodents and stuff like rats and guinea pigs and stuff. So I may give that a shot because that I'm just thinking like foam and stuff while it is soft and it's shock absorbing. It's also kind of like I'm just picturing a machine gun barrel getting stuck in the foam and then busting off and then. I guess basically, since we're all going to be at Nats, somebody's got to bring super glue and modeled and to me extra thin because we're going to need it, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure all the local Vegas hobby shops are st- stocking up right now. Oh, no doubt. I would like to think there's probably like a model medic that at least more than one. I know at like Comic Cons, that's a thing. Like there's people that they carry like like a like a plate carrier, but it's a guy like glue and tape and like all this other stuff for so like people can fix their like cosplay i would imagine there's got to be someone there that's going to have glue and and all that like you know stuff ready i would hope a little cart they're wheeling around in the shop with yeah. like the first aid symbol over it <laughs> yeah hopefully it's not like nurse ratchet or something <laughs> <laughs> i'm sitting here stroking my beard thinking about that thinking ooh, that's a good point like wouldn't that be a cool thing like just at nats you set up your table being like need glue need whatever yep. you know set a little box out you don't even have to pay don't pay me for it but if you want to tip me that's fine you know because <laughs> i mean that, you, I'd, I'd definitely throw a fiver in there if i was like i need glue does who's got glue <laughs> i know i'm gonna be breaking aerials off the crusader i just i see it happening all my references of these Shermans have that giant aerial and like, you know, in Fury where, you know, he's even grabbing it and pulling it down, like the giant aerial coming off the top of the turret. I'm like, oh no, how am I going to do this? Because, oh, that's scary. So should I even do it? Yeah, I should do it. Oh no. Do it. Yeah, I'll probably do it. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a sucker for peer pressure. <laughs> Ian, uh, you, you've mentioned your father and you mentioned Mike uh, with Tank Art too. Who are some of your other inspirations or some people that have really impacted your modeling? Well, uh, other than the guys that I mentioned, definitely Uncle Night Shift. Once he started doing his, uh, his YouTube channel, when he did his ball tank, I remember he posted it in the Scale Modeler's Teak group. And I remember I was enamored with that because just the way his style is, it wasn't dry. It was, and then they were really well produced and like you could see what he was doing. So I was like, okay, this is cool. And then he starts like taking off. Everybody starts knowing him. And then when he started his Patreon, I have never done that before. Well, uh, he's the first and only person I'm subscribed to on Patreon. That's money well spent, in my opinion. So I love his stuff. I love, you know, as far as armor stuff goes, obviously Adam Wilder. That's, I mean, that's just given. 
you know, and obviously not to not to butter up the hosts of the Plastic Posse podcast, but, you know, TJ and John Bonani definitely guys are always pushing me to do better, you know, because you see this stuff every day and I'm like, man, I, I, it's definitely mojo. It's a lot of mojo being gotten from these guys <laughs> where it's motivation to do stuff. So definitely, you know, that, there's a lot of, a lot of people I, I, I do look at and, you know, a uh, scale Dracula. I don't know if uh, you guys have seen his stuff. Oh, at he's all. great. I am infatuated with that T64 he's doing. That's my favorite tank. He's uh, got that, uh, I think, a, is it a Centurion that he's doing right now? The Vietnam I Centurion? So. Yeah, so that, that, I mean, that that's fantastic. I was looking at his dirt accumulations today, and that was mm, chef's kiss. <laughs> What's uh, on the horizon? What's uh, some projects that are maybe next up on your bench after you uh, finish up the Sherman? In the Scam Honors Critique Group right now, completely low pressure, not like a big official thing. We decided to do the Bundeswehr build where we were, this was, a, this came about when TACOM announced their 116th scale weasel with the tow, tow missile launcher on it. When that came out, you know, we idly said in the thread where they announced it, oh, we should do a Bundeswehr build, you know, with that. Because a lot of people are going to want to build that and then that'll give them reason to. And then somebody else, you know, of course said, well, I don't like 116th scale. And I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. Build something else. Build a leopard. Build an F-104 build something in Bundeswehr scheme. And that's kind of when we decided, well, let's do that. And then at the time, since Nats is coming up and we were all working on something else, everybody's working on something, we decided, you know, uh, I, I guess July 20th is kind of an important day for the Bundeswehr that they have like a celebration. We decided that was going to be our soft start date. I'm going to be doing Mang's Leopard 2A7. So that's probably going to be what I work on next. And then through Nats, uh, I also got something else. Something that's kind of a surprise. Stay tuned for that one. But I think definitely what I'm going to be posting pictures of and stuff is going to be the leopard coming up here. I'm getting my dad to do it. So my dad, being the Warhammer guy, he never stopped doing Warhammer stuff. I kind of convinced him, you should do the Bundeswehr build or the, you know, the Bundes build as we're calling it. So he's like, I mean, I guess give me a leopard or something. Yeah. So he's, uh, you know, he's in scale modest critique group. You know, he posts every so often he's, we always talk about enjoying your hobby, how you want to enjoy it. He's content with his testers, orange tubes of glue. He somehow pulls it off just fine. There's no big, you know, globules of glue everywhere, but he's not into the whole weathering style like we are, you know, very much an old school modeler, but we're, we're going to see if we can get him out of his comfort zone a little bit with this leopard here coming up. So we'll see what happens. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, we've said several times there's no wrong way to do it. If he's getting a kick out of it, you know, I, I couldn't dump the tube glue fast enough, but a lot of people still like it, so... Yep, and uh, he's he's actually uh, it, we're, it's probably looking like he's going to come to Nats with us, so you guys will get to meet Father Bonner, as I like to call him, and uh, yeah, <laughs> get to introduce, really kind of uh, immerse him into our world. <laughs> one kind of last question, Ian. What are some things, or maybe one thing in your personal building that you'd like to improve on or get better at over the next year? Oh, man, uh, everything. <laughs> um, realistically, I think the thing that I struggle with the most is hairspray chipping. Some of these guys can do it super, super well. I ended up basically dumping the time and energy into doing it by brush because obviously Night Shift does it. Got to do what the master does, but ended up trying to get that. But it's kind of hard because if you're not amazing at it, you can tell that they're brush painted on. I might try giving that a shot and try to get better at that. I'd love to get better at, you know, oil paint weathering. I mean, that's that seems like at one point you're like, oh, I've got this. I can figure this out. And then at other points you're like, ah, well, 
I could do this better, you know, like streaking's tough. Like I have, I have a hard time with that. There's just odds and ends everywhere that, you know, it's like, oh, this is tough. This is tough. You know, so I'd say getting better at it. I'd want to do streaking. I'd want to do hairspray chipping better. I always, my big roadblock with armor, even though this is the most that I do, is the suspension and the, the tracks. Like I always like when I, that's the part I dread the most is how do I do this? How do I make this look good? And I have such a hard time getting what I'm seeing in my mind to reflect on the model. And I think that we all struggle with that, you know, and that's, that's the one thing I think I'd like to get better at, I guess, other than the other two things is just, Ian, you need to figure out how to do these suspensions better, (laughs) figure out how to do these treads better. Awesome. Well, Ian, that's terrific. Uh, We really appreciated uh, your input today. It's always fun to talk to you, man. You know, love your modeling, keep up the great work. I know you're going to do a super job on that Sherman for your mom and uh, looking forward to that. Before we go, though, um, let everybody know how if they want to see some of your work or how to get a hold of you on the socials. Definitely Scale Modelers Critique Group. That's going to be, you know, a place where I'm I'm at frequently. We love having people in there. It's obviously not like any other model group uh, in Facebook. There's, you know, uh, the collection of knowledge that's there is is amazing. I definitely think if you get it, air quotes, if you kind of, if it clicks, that you just understand how things work and that, you know, this isn't the group that if you, you know, are content with what you're doing, want to throw it up there and you're looking for people to praise it and don't want somebody to say, hey, man, you could do this a little better. Like, by all means, you know, that's not for everybody, but I, I post there, iBones Models, that's I-B-O-N-E-Z Models. I have my my buddy Tony Lindgren made a uh, logo for me. It's an airbrush and uh, a skeletal hand and then, you know, my little logo and stuff's uh, a skeleton airbrushing a T-34, you know, so that's where you know you're in the right spot. You can find my stuff there. I'm also on Instagram under iBones Models as well. Uh, and my personal page, obviously, shoot me a friend request. I love having everybody on there. As the meme says, if you're going to add me, everybody better be cool with a lot real quick. <laughs> it could get rowdy, but <laughs> definitely, you know, uh, Ian Bonner is my name. So, you know, by all means, you know, shoot me a friend request, shoot me a message. I love talking models. I'll, if you ask me a question, you're going to get a lot more than you bargained for. I can just tell you that because I love to talk, as you can tell. <laughs> Well, man, you're you're one of our dogs. We really appreciate it. It's always fun to talk to you, and we will see you in Vegas in a few weeks, man. Sounds good. It's always good talking to the boys. All right. Take care, Ian. Yeah, all right. Yep. See you. All right. Thanks, guys. That was a great interview, as always. Sorry, I missed out. Well, it's now time for our social media shout out segment. All right. To lead off, I'm going to you know remind everyone that we do have an Instagram account at Plastic Posse Podcast and a Twitter account at Plastic Posse. So if you are on either one of those social media platforms, along with our Facebook page, feel free to send us a message, like our content, share us, you know, spread the love around. Starting off, I'm going to go over to YouTube and there's a like brand new channel called Spruce and Bruce Scale Modeling. I can't remember the guy's name that runs it. He has a rather decently sized Instagram page that I've been following for a while now. He recently started, decided to start a YouTube channel. I think he's got like three videos is exactly what it sounds like. He loves his beer. So I think there's like always a beer featured in, in the videos that he's been doing. He's just starting out. He's only got a handful of subscribers on YouTube. Go check him out. Subscribe. 
he just put out a video, I want to say yesterday or sometime this week. And I, it was about how to model Hessian strips on British tanks, which is, if you know anything about World War II armor, it was a type of camouflage that the British like to use. You see it on uh, like Cromwell's and stuff like that a lot. You see it on Sherman's sometimes too. Uh, yeah, pretty cool channel. So, you know, go check him out, give him a subscribe and help him grow his channel. He's a good dude. Looks like he's got about 180 subs, so let's help him get those up there. He has a really good video, TG. I don't know if you've seen it, called My Favorite Builds. And uh, he's he's really talented. He does armor, he does aircraft, he does figures. He's good at what he does. All right, so for Facebook, I selected Arthur Models. Relatively small page. I think it's also pretty new. I think he's, yeah, he's based out of Hong Kong, and he's a self-described Sherman and Tomcat lover. So, I mean, you can't go wrong with those two subjects. I know a lot of people like to say they're overdone, but dude, F-14 Tomcats are awesome. Shermans are awesome, too. What caught my eye is he recently finished Meng's Sherman Jumbo, which is an awesome kit, and I have. And I'm trying to find a reason to build it because it's probably the it's probably the best Jumbo kit available, and the Jumbo is probably the coolest variant of the Sherman. So he recently finished that up, did a really good job. Nice, heavily weathered olive drab which always you know gets me going now he's working on a hasagawa f14d looks like he's getting ready to put into paint so or put in a primer so yeah another pretty small facebook page i don't think he's yeah he's been only started in may of this year so if you're on facebook just look up arthur models really good guy pretty talented modeler i'm really glad you brought this one up tj i started following him when he started back in may and he, his first build right out of the chute was a Centurion tank, which I'm a big fan of. And it's really, really terrific. And then, like you said, his Tomcats, and he's done a couple of flankers. He, he's a really good modeler. So, yeah, you guys check that out. It's really good stuff. All right. The next one is actually, it's, it's in our Instagram category, but he actually has his own website, which is www.fox2models. So that's F-O-X-T-W-O models.com spelled out. And he is just a really tremendous aircraft builder. He builds all kinds of different different subjects. He's got World War II builds. He's got jet builds. He's got uh, modern, very lightly weathered builds. He's got some that are more hev- heavily weathered. He just really, really good. So check, uh, his, his name is Jake. Check out uh, his website, uh, Fox 2 Models, or you can find him on Instagram and also Facebook as well. And then as a wild card, we have the Scale Model Hanger. And again, it's kind of the same thing. It's Facebook, it's Instagram, it's, uh, it's a website as well. His modeling is really, really terrific. And he does kind of a combination on his website of not just builds, but he does blog posting on it. Maybe similar to what you guys have seen from Spencer Pollard. But he's a really good builder. He usually has models on a base. He'll do digital backgrounds, make them, you know, almost look like they're in painting sometimes. Always does really good weathering. He's bringing a little bit more of that more heavily weathered look to some of the aircraft that he does that should be more heavily weathered, like Sky Raiders or uh, World War II Corsairs out in the Pacific, subjects like that. Another one of the builds on there, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but he did a build of the Blue Thunder helicopter, which as a as a young kid was one of my favorite movies, and I love that helicopter from that movie. 
So that was pretty cool. Very nice. I'm actually cruising through his Instagram right now and he's got some gorgeous builds. Yeah, definitely worth checking out. Also, before we move on, we wanted to talk about um, a couple blogs and, and we've talked about these before, but I wanted to make sure you guys saw that this week. Chris Wallace, who's on our uh, aircraft roundtable a little bit later on, it has a blog called Model Airplane Maker, and his blog post from this week was really, really great. So check that out if you get a chance. And then Spencer Pollard, his uh, The Kit Box blog is has been really on point lately, and uh, he's had two or three blogs in the last couple of weeks that I've just really enjoyed reading, you know, blogs that kind of bring back some of the reasons why I started modeling. You know, he talks sort of about the romance of the local hobby shop in one of his posts, and he also talks about a lot of his modeling lately has been kind of a, you know, a, a respect for or a love affair with, you know, the people that inspired him, you He's taken those old Tamiya kits and done those legacy builds um, for, you know, Shep Payne and also for Francois Verlinden. So uh, check out those two blogs. I think you guys will really enjoy that content. Spencer and Chris do great job. You're going to really enjoy what they're doing. All right, cool. So as always, JB will add these links to the Plastic Policy Facebook page and we will add them to the episode show notes. So if you didn't catch it, you can find them there. Yeah, what have you guys been up to the last couple of weeks? Uh, What's on your benches? Well, I've got what's not on my bench right now. Everything I talked about before, of course, I still have that that big Millennium Falcon on my bench. But what I've been working on is I'm just about wrapped up on my T3485 build, the RFM kit. Uh, The speeder bike is well in progress. Lots of paint chipping going on on that hole. But my gosh, these guys have gotten me hooked on something. And I always said tanks are weird. I mean, just I don't enjoy doing tanks and tanks are dumb. I'm a liar. Um, John started with these slammer builds and then TJ started doing slammer builds, which if you've been listening to us, you know, means you're, it's just a kit. You're going to, you're going to knock out fast just to have a good time. And I picked up two days ago, the Tamiya 48 scale, uh, T55, and I'm already ready for, I've already got it painted and, and ready for some pin washes and some filters and I'm having a blast with this thing and it's not taken me a lot of time, a few hours, the last couple of nights and, and I'm ready for, for detailing and it's never going to be an award winner, but man, is this fun. TJ, I don't know about you, but I'm like, I feel like a proud Papa right now. I mean, we oh, got, yeah. we yeah. got, not only do we have Doug building tanks, he did a set of frials for his T34. And I noticed that on his, this little T55 he's doing, that he's doing JB's uh, track and wheels method on there. It, I mean, it works, man. Like I'm a convert too. JB got me on it as well. I I figured this was a good one to try some of these things out because it it's small. It's not expensive. If I screw it up, I don't care. It's not nobody until I. I mean, Scott knew I bought it, but nobody knew I was working on it until we started recording. So this is fun. I mean, that's just that's one of those kits you just can't say nice enough nice stuff about. I mean that. T55 I mean that is literally fall it falls together I mean it it's and it's so good too it's it's just gorgeous they they did a really good job and of course there's room for improvement if that's what you want to do whatever it, it's a Tommy kit every Tommy kit's like that at least with armor I built mine straight out of the box and it looks awesome it's still one of my I mean it's not the best thing I've ever done but it's it's one of my favorite just in general because it's it was fun it's my first 48 scale build 
I did it in a white um, African Union color scheme and it's just I don't know it, it's a good kit it's that's one of those kits where if someone wants to build armor I'm like you should get this this T55 even if you don't care about T55s you'll just have a good time the other thing to mention on these uh Tamiya 48 scale kits not only can you slam them out and do them in a pretty short amount of time and get a great result but these things are like less than 30 bucks you know, you look at a at a new Mang or Takeom or Rifle kit, some of those are, you know, getting up there 75, 80 bucks for a 35th scale. And you can get one of these things for, you know, 25, 30 bucks. So. This one, this one was 25 bucks. That's a, it's one of the, some of the best modeling money you can spend right there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess, uh, you know, before I get over to TJ, I want to build on that. I've been working on Tamiya's little Kettencrad. I just picked it up and and I had some time. I wasn't going to be able to do any painting. So I just started putting it together. That's the brand new kit. And again, it's a $25 model, but it's just, it's pure joy. It's just so much fun. It's engineered to go together really well. It's actually got a little bit of photo etch in the kit. You know, it's got just great little touches. The tracks go together in the same style that JB likes to use. To the Tamiya instructions have you do it that way. Anyway, just a great little kit. And I've got that completed and added that to my pile of things that are ready for paint. So TJ, what's uh, what's been going on over there in Virginia on your bench? So unfortunately, I have not finished another kit since the last time we talked. The hell you I feel say? like that, that is uh, like... The exception and not the rule. So I've been working on a lot. I, I, I don't know. I've been kind of scatterbrained a little bit lately. I'm getting a lot done, but not a lot of one thing done. After dedicating the first half of the year to like clearing out my backlog, I've kind of built it back up again. A little bit. Not, not that bad. So right now in paint, I have a 172nd scale Maz 537G prime mover. I'm just doing the actual tractor. The kit I bought is the newer boxing from Tacom that comes with a big semi trailer, which is awesome. It's huge. And a T fifty four B, a T fifty five essentially. I mean that's that's what a T fifty four is. It has a ventilator on top and that's got a couple other minor things, but that one was the one that was originally done for ammo. It was like an ammo boxing, so an ammo by MIG, which used to be the only place you could get it, but now it comes in this kit. I've I'm like partially done with the tank. I've just been kind of like poking around on it when I have time. Uh, it's really good. The The tractor was fantastic as far as putting it together goes. And uh, it's in sub assemblies. I can paint it separately. And I found a really cool picture on the internet of one that I believe was converted to a fire truck of some variety. So it's red, but it's old. So like the green showing through in a lot of, a lot of places. It's really neat. Yeah, so I have that going on. I finished building... The Flyhawk uh, 172nd scale, because apparently that's all I do now. Renault <laughs> FT75BS, which is a self-propelled gun version of the Renault FT, which did exist. They made 40 of them after the war. I don't think it ever really saw service. There's pictures of them at least driving around. Uh, so they did something. I don't think they ever fought. You, you get, that's a little twofer kit with those little Renault FTs. I mean, they're itty bitty. You can easily fit in the palm of your hand. I actually just primed it before we started recording. I turned my compressor off before we started. Uh, what else do I have going on? I feel like I have a million other things. I've got the Mang Leopard, the Canadian Leopard, the first one, not the Leopard 2. I think it's the Leopard 1C or Leopard C. I can't remember exactly what it is. Building that one, man, I don't know. 
I just got so much going on. But hopefully I can get a little bit of work done this weekend and maybe get most of the paint done on this, the Maz, because it's really cool. Yeah, that's looking really good. I love the chipping that you did on the uh, – is that a, is that a winch, that great big huge box behind the cab yes. on that truck? Yes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave the winch uh, green with that like – I, I did. I found another picture of one of these. And I don't think it was the G version. I think it was one of the early versions. Also, as a fire truck with the winch, but they didn't paint the winch. And if you've ever seen, I mean, if you know what a prime mover is, it's just a big tractor, right? In our, it was essentially an artillery tractor. They have a, it's a fifth wheel. Well, it's like a fifth wheel. It's got eight wheels, but you know, it's got the fifth wheel in the back and a big, huge winch that sits in a box behind the fifth wheel, in between the cab and the fifth wheel. And it's just huge because it's for, you know, pulling tanks up the semi-trailer. But yeah, so I'm going to leave that at, at green, heavily chipped, because the picture I found is just like old. It's clearly been sitting outside for years and hasn't been used. So it's just kind of an excuse to like weather the hell out of something. Did you end up hollowing those exhausts out? Oh, yeah. I mean, I hit it with the drill bit real quick. Nice. Hopefully, you know, it'll make a difference. I think, you know, it usually does. I mean, hollowing exhaust out is like a kind of no-brainer on most kits. But what about you, Scott? What have you been working on besides the cat and crad or whatever that thing is? The rabbit. <laughs> other other than that little uh, cat and crad, not really very much. I've got that hoggo. Got two of those little Maz trucks like TJ has, although mine are just in primer. I haven't got quite as, as far as he has. And I primed my 135th scale SU-76M tank destroyer as well. And then... I guess one of these days, one of us should start working on a Spitfire for our group builds, too. <laughs> Mine started. Started. I haven't put any paint on it yet. I have a cockpit built in sub-assemblies, ready for, ready for paint. Well, I started um, by just... I, I always, with my cockpits, I always start by painting the, the pieces and then assembling. It's just how I've always done it. And I've put primer in there and the aluminum, the bare, the bare metal section of that cockpit. All right, so you're walls. ahead of me. Well, fortunately for uh, the three of us, uh, some of the posse members over in the group build have been doing some great work on their Spitfire. So uh, if you guys haven't looked at the uh, group build site lately, uh, check that out. But yeah, I'm sure after Nats, all three of us will probably get back on those Spitfire builds for sure. Man, we suck. Hey guys, let's get (laughs) together and build this model and everybody else builds but us. Oh man. Sorry guys. We'll, We'll be back though. We'll be back. Now it's time for our main segment, an exclusive Plastic Posse podcast roundtable with some terrific aircraft modelers. Our panel today consists of Jim Bates, Chris Wallace, Chris Sieber, John Vitkus, and myself. This turned out to be a great discussion, and it delves deeply into aircraft modeling and even some general modeling with an aircraft perspective. So without further eloquence, because I'm eloquent, here is the roundtable. Welcome to another Plastic Posse Podcast Modelers Roundtable. Today I have a great group of guys with me and we'll be discussing aircraft modeling. These guys are all really terrific modelers and most of you in the Posse are already going to be familiar with each of them. So let's kind of go around the room here and do some introductions. First of all, we have with us Chris Sieber, aka Luftdrum72. Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Scott. Well, I started modeling at seven with a, a 
uh, monogram A4 Skyhawk in the Heathen 148 scale, <laughs> which turned into a tester's glue bomb. And I don't think I've ever looked at an A4 again with my apologies to the, the guys on that other model podcast. I like to geek out about stuff. Fortunately, I found the Gospel of Tamiya. A few years later, I went to the International Hobby Show in Toronto. You immediately walk into the show and into the Tamiya booth, and my life changed after that. And I pretty much kept going right up till, I think about just over a decade ago, left the hobby for a life reset and raising a child and whatnot, and then came back about three years ago, and uh, my wallet is a whole lot lighter because of it. <laughs> and that's it in a nutshell. Actually, to go, to go back, the, the really cool thing about the way it started, I guess, is uh, we were in Chautauqua, New York for a summer camp. And at the time, you could go to summer camp as a kid and they built models at summer camp. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world to the point where I, I bitched until my my parents bought me a model that night because the older kids were having more fun than I was. That is the coolest summer camp ever. I've never heard of that before. Yeah, it was it was fantastic. And it just shows you how far we've fallen. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, next, we uh, sticking with the theme of Chris's. We have Chris Wallace, aka Model Airplane Maker. Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. Um, I returned to the hobby in 2007. Uh, I'm that standard story you hear where you started off as a kid. You, you know, for various reasons, you you moved on and then you come back. I mostly do 48 scale aircraft and mostly do Pacific War. Uh, I started Model Airplane Maker as a blog to give back. I'm kind of, I kind of see it as myself as somewhat to you guys. I'm a hobby booster, cheerleader, that type of thing, promoter. Um, and now I'm also doing videos on YouTube where you can watch my hands build models right in front of your very eyes. We also have uh, from the Posse, a longtime friend and a great aircraft modeler in his own right, Doug Smith. Well, hi, guys. If you listen to this show at all, you know who I am. I've been building models since I was about seven years old, gifted by a neighbor at the time who was retired and and he was always building. So I've been into that ever since with a few pauses here and there, but pretty much straight through. We also have recent import to the state of Utah and a recent friend. Uh, Doug and I both recently had the opportunity to meet him. John Vidkus, welcome to the show, John. Tell us a little bit about you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I feel like somewhat of an imposter being on this show, but we'll, we'll try, to, try to do things and uh, help you out here. Yes, I started modeling when I was eight years old in Munster, Indiana, which sounds like a barn in a silo, but it's actually a suburb of Chicago, with the old Revell Mustang that I enjoyed building. It came in silver, so no need for paint, and it was fun. Chris's comment about uh, the summer camp thing reminded me that I sort of got our shop teacher to do a, a classic a class on model building in eighth grade. So that was one of our classes in eighth grade was model building. And I remember building the Revell Tempest, uh, Hawker Tempest, with a lot of putty. It was mostly putty and a little, little plastic. <laughs> um, that was fun. And, and I was pretty steady through, you know, took a little, little time off, but through graduate school and stuff, but pretty steady through. But have taken a hiatus, hiatus for about, Oh, I don't know, maybe 20 years now. The time kind of rolls up. Still still buying, so my wallet keeps getting you know lighter, but not building a whole lot until the social media came out. And I started listening to Jim on his Scale Canadian TV and um, Plastic Model Mojo and the Posse. And that has gotten my, um, my juices flowing again. So here we are 
building again. So it's fun. Last but certainly not least, a great friend. You've heard him on the posse several times. He still thinks he's a Canadian, but our uh, Jim Bates. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Jim. Thanks. For, back to the show. I thanks should for say. having me. Hey, my story is, is similar to everybody else. My first kit was an Airfix 72nd scale Sabre, and I don't remember when this was, and uh, it left a lifelong uh, joy of building Airfix kits. My story was I, uh, it's kind of the same story all the time. Built as a kid, uh, quit for sex, drugs, and rock and roll, picked it up after, uh, actually, I was studying for the bar exam, and then um, was more of a uh, buyer than a modeler for a long time, moved out to Seattle and kind of picked it up in 2014, actively finishing things. I've always been building, but I kind of lack any ability to focus. So I don't uh, build a lot, don't finish much. Let's get into the questions. I appreciate everybody there. Let's start with uh, Luftdrom on this one. We're going to call him that so we don't get the Chris's mixed up here. Uh, what is your favorite part of building model aircraft? What's the secret socks that really gets you fired up for your hobby? Honestly, I, I've, I have this obsession with kid engineering. I, I almost can't say that I genre that I'm aircraft modeler per se, except that seems to be what I gravitate to. But to see how somebody takes an aircraft and decides that this is how we're going to break it down. This is how we're going to add detail. This is how we're going to part it out. You know, and this is somewhere like I just got the, the clear prop uh, Sky Shark a few days ago. And to see how that has been broken down, ironically, to be put back together again. But I love, you know, I'm a designer by trade. Uh, my dad was an engineer. So I've always had this obsession with machinery. I've always had this obsession with how things work, with how things go together, how they come apart and hopefully go back together again. And and combine that, I think, with you know just a, a fascination with things that fly and conveniently make loud noises and blow things up, you know. But yeah, it's just it's seeing how how these how these kits are engineered and marveling at at what companies like Tamiya and Clearprop and and some of the others do that makes you know, these days, a 172nd scale aircraft easily look like a 148th in a lot of respects. Obviously, there's some things, some thicknesses that you can't account for. But to have to have people comment on stuff that you put up and say, you sh-, you know, that I would swear that was 148th. And a lot of it's down to the engineering. A lot of it's down to the detail. And that, I, that I think, is really cool. As somebody who tries to to bring a sense of realism to something that's otherwise not the real thing, I think that's a really neat facet of the hobby is to see how we can do that from an engineering perspective in kits. Well, I, uh, as I said before, I don't finish a whole lot of models and that's because I get focused on research and, um, I have gone so far as, uh, I write on the topic. I put together a, uh, three, uh, three volume, uh, article for IPMS Canada on Hawker Hurricanes the most recent issue, I've got things on Chinooks and Chipmunks. So I just go down these rabbit holes of research, and I love it. And what drives me nuts in our hobby is there's a lot of books out there, and a lot of them just take old books and repeat what's been said over and over again and don't do any primary research. I was a history major, so I like to look for documentation that proves your point rather than just assuming what somebody else said. It, it makes life difficult because I don't see how I will ever finish a hurricane model ever. I know too much about it. It's terrible. 
but it's definitely the, the learning, the research, and then uh, we get to the building and that gets more sketchy. John, what about you? Well, um, I guess I'll have two answers. One is what I like about model adjacent activities, like Jim was just talking about, uh, history and, and whatnot, and then mo- actually modeling activities. And for the model adjacent, which has been most of my time over the last 20 years, you know, it started off as seeing a photograph and trying to replicate that photograph as well as I could. And that was the big driving force for me. And I remember, for example, the Italy um, LA-5, Lavochkin LA-5. So a photograph in an ARCO book and said, that's the plane I want to, re- I want to do and try to reproduce it. More and more over time, it's become um, what I call the call of the stories and the history stories behind some of the aircraft. Uh, one example would be uh, Bram uh, van der Stock, a Dutch pilot who um, actually shot down a 109E1 with his Fokker uh, D21 fixed gear plane. Later, emigrated to escaped to England, was shot down in a Spitfire, was part of the Great Escape. He was one of the three to actually escape. He was a James Coburn character, who was actually Dutch in real life, um, and ended up being a physician in New Mexico <laughs> named Bob Vanderstock. So it's a fascinating life story. And to try to honor uh, some of the contributions these people made by building a, a replica of their plane is really quite a big call for me. So I like that. In terms of modeling, what I like are details and little small details in 72nd scale become very small. Um, But I really like those. Jim knows that when we went to visit him in Seattle and went to the Museum of Flight, you know, half of my pictures were of navigation lights. (laughs) So and how these navigation lights are mounted on various aircraft, especially the Russian ones, uh, which I just find absolutely fascinating. Little details like that. I was telling Scott and Doug, how I hollowed out the um, inside of a old Airfix P-80 nose wheel, like a bagel, sliced it in half, hollowed it out, and then remounted it. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that I like that gets me going. That reminds me of uh, back in the Trenton Air Show days, J- uh, days, Jim. I remember being on my back under, underneath the C-5 Tiger, C-5, CF-5 Tiger, and this older gentleman was just kind of staring at me and finally, I, I crawled out, and he looked at me and said, "You must be a scale modeler." <laughs> like, yes, sir. And then it all just seemed to make sense to him, and he was happy, and off he went. <laughs> but apparently, we have a type, right, at air shows. Uh, is this, is there something wrong with this guy, or is he just a model builder? <laughs> yeah, I. Yeah, there was a genuine look of concern until I came out and said, no, I, I'm just taking photos for building models. Oh, okay then. And off he trundled. And the world made sense. That's right. Doug, what about you? What's the secret sauce in building model aircraft for you? First of all, I want to say, I, I don't know this number everybody keeps throwing around. What is this 72 thing? <laughs> yeah, I remember your comments early days about that. I was waiting for my day. <laughs> Well, you know, of course, we all build subjects we like that interest us. I I love to find a kit, a good kit, a good kit. It's important to me. I don't I don't play with with uh, bad fits anymore. There's just not enough time in the day. I love to see an aircraft come together. 
I love to see put that Spitfire wing together and see that shape. And it just, there's just something really special about that. And when you, every, every step you take after that, when you mount it to the fuselage, when you, there's just very, something very, very nice about seeing that shape come together and then making it come alive. I love to paint. I really do. Uh, I like breaking out the airbrush and putting a camouflage on an aircraft and I'm actually getting ready to to start doing mostly uh, airbrushing my markings too. So that'll be an adventure as we as we go along. But but yeah, it's just watching an aircraft come together is my is my favorite thing. I think that's really neat too, especially when you're talking about things that were designed before computers, because it gives you a very tactile, in your hand sense of what were they thinking. You know, especially especially with some of the uglier stuff because they were often the greatest experiments, but. <laughs> you know, you can turn it from all angles. And like you said, Doug, you can put that wing to that fuselage. You can see the, the, the radius of the fillet and how it changed and all kinds of different things. And just it kind of connects you to how people imagined air moving around shapes before we had computers doing a lot of the heavy lifting for us. And I, I, I agree. That's a fascinating part of it. That's a great point. And talking about ugly airframes, like the A-10, where you literally design an aircraft around a weapon or other experimental aircraft that were designed around an engine or, you know, special kind of wing. And that gets back to what Luftram was saying about engineering of kits, but engineering of actual airframes. I do think that's, um, I build a little bit of aircraft, not as much as you gentlemen do, but um, I do think that's pretty fascinating. Chris, what's your perspective? Well, I'm afraid I'm going to echo quite a few things that have already been said. Definitely, there was always a fascination with everything that flies, and that's always been that way. But I think it sort of transitioned more to the history side. I remember specifically, I think I was 13, 14 years old, and I had this book that my parents bought me called Air War by Yablonsky or something like that. I think that pretty much every used bookstore across North America has at least two of those somewhere in there. They were probably issued to kids at one point, but in there, it just turned from being interested in things that fly to really being fascinated by the stories and how these things changed history and how they were involved in history. And uh, my interests really zeroed in on the Pacific theater. And what, what really keeps me coming back is the challenge. And I, I like to challenge myself to do something either a little bit different every single time I sit down and break open a new kit or do something better. This is, and this is my own, my own path, right? So I like to see how far can I take something? What can I do different? Can I really challenge myself to become something or do something better than what I did before? And you can kind of, if you, you know, you can't see it right now, but I have a, a series of mods. You can really see a definite progression of, uh, of styles and, and ability. And I think that's one great thing about this hobby is that you can keep coming back to, especially, you know, actually it doesn't matter if it's aircraft tanks or anything else. Really, you can, you can keep coming back. And if you want to do better, you want to practice and take advantage of, of social media or, or, any sort of reference material, you can't. And uh, that's what that's what keeps coming me coming back anyway. Well, um, I want to stick with you, uh, Chris, for this next question. Um, Doug brought up a point I wanted to talk about. One of the areas in the last few years that we've seen a trend towards is people replacing the decals, which I'm a known hater of, um, in uh, model kits and um, cutting their own stencils and airbrushing their own markings. So is that something that you do, and and do you see more of that uh, happening as we go along in the hobby? 
you know, it's it's uh, definitely a segment you can have me back for someday as why I hate decals so much and why, why <laughs> I don't like using them. So if you ever have that segment in the future, please give me a call. Yes. So I have uh, graduated from relying on, on kit decals to always insisting on aftermarket if I have to go that way. But now I'm also using masks quite a lot. I do a lot of Japanese things, so it's fairly easy to do a circle. To that end, I also got one of these uh, silhouette, silhouette cutter, and I've just started fooling around a bit with that. Yeah, painting your markings is just so much better, so much more satisfying and a lot more realistic than, than what, I, what I call like the, the, the decal. Uh, you're crossing your fingers and hoping that, that this thing will actually work the way it's supposed to work. And sometimes they do, and it's great, and then sometimes they don't, and it's... Uh, it's swear-inducing, to, to put it mildly. Let's see. I'm writing your name down on uh, my Christmas card list as a co-hater of decals here. There we go. Um, there we go. Oh, <laughs> you, you can put me on that list, too. All right. <laughs> Liftrum, what about you? Uh, let's hear about your, your uh, feelings on this. Yeah, I, I'm much the same as Chris. If there's aftermarket decals, I, I'm in the habit now of buying them. I mean, I think aftermarket decals, aftermarket exhaust, aftermarket wheels and and pedo tubes are almost a necessity now for any any kit that you want to have be re- reasonably serious about. But I mean, the, the reality is, unless with one exception, and that was actually Airfix with the P40 I finished recently, who had cartograph decals. I just think that that's, that's an area that companies, it, it's almost like they it's a throwaway kind of element to them. And I think that's a real shame. And, and as much as I love Tamiya, that is, I think, the one major failing of Tamiya is that certainly for aircraft, it is these decals are so thick, right? And I know I know they've used cartograph elsewhere in their line, I think maybe with some of the cars. So why it's not consistent, I don't know. But yeah, I any any kind of marking that I will spray, I will spray it. And that goes uh the the 109 G6 that I just finished with the the eagle eyes on the boils. Uh they were they were done by mostly by airbrush. And fortunately to me, it provided 172nd scale drawings in the instructions. And so I could basically just put a piece of masking tape over, cut as I saw through the, the, the artwork, as I saw through the tape and put it on. And it all worked pretty well because otherwise I couldn't see wrapping the decals around those those surfaces. And, and with some of the complex graphics we see now, especially for demonstration aircraft where, you know, being a one or two off, they, they really challenge the paintwork. Decals don't often keep up with that. I mean, obviously, you're not going to spray a, a complex thing, but that is somewhere that you want to invest. Otherwise, you're going to see the screen, you know, the, 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 the series of dots that they use to represent shadings of different colors. And, and there's nothing worse than having a fantastically detailed painted model and then having these dots just jump out at you because of subpar decals or because it wasn't masked and sprayed. So I'm 100%. If it's, if it's sprayable, I'll spray it. And that that goes for decals and it goes for just about any part of that on a, on a plane or a kit. Jim, you and I were talking about this last night. What do you, how do you feel about this? All right. Well, I must really love decals because I've invested my whole daughter's whole college fund in those decals. And it's possible though. I probably should plead the fifth on this, that I have more decals in the closet of no hope than I have unfinished kits. There's just something about a sheet of decals that arrives and it's got all these pretty colors on it and it looks so good and it inspires me to go build a different model than I would have. That being said, being somebody who builds a lot of obscure aircraft, 
I want to get one of these silhouette cutters because they just open up the arena of what can be done and you're no longer stuck with commercial decal sheets. And not to digress, uh, but those uh, some of those cutters also cut uh, thin plastic too. So, I mean, it's also a scratch building tool. And it's been neat to see some people who have, who have basically created, you know, multiple pieces and then they just stick them together to create, you know, something larger because they can cut whatever they want on a, on a silhouette or a cricket or, or what have you. So I just think that when it comes to painting it, you have just so much more control at the very end of your build. So as you go along your build, if you make an oops, easy to fix, very, very easy, easy, easy. You get to the end where the paint's all done. It's all flat. It's all beautiful. Everything like that. And then you have a fish eye and a deckle, right? Or you have uh, one that tears or one that just will not settle down. At least when you're, when you're painting them, you have so much more control over that. You can, you know, it's less anxiety, at least that last step. Or you have a reaction between your paint and your deckle solution. Oh God. Yeah. Right. Especially, especially when you're working around <laughs> co- complex curves and stuff like that. And you have to get to using the harder stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's nothing worse than throwing a bunch of solution on. And then, I mean, not just a fish eye and a deckle because... Sometimes you can deal with that, but suddenly you've got a giant blotch around your deckle and maybe your deckle's still not sitting properly. (laughs) You want to see an airplane fly across the room? There it goes. That's a shelf queen right there. (laughs) You know, I guess I'm, I'm unusual in this group. Uh, I guess I'm unusual in this group. I actually like decaling. I'm south of the border, so I'll say decals and decaling. You know, to me, if you ever had that experience of you're driving on the highway and there's a certain point at which you know that you're coming home and you know that you're kind of, you're kind of near home. There's a certain point of the highway where, where that happens. To me, that's what decaling is in modeling. I know I'm almost done. I know I'm almost home when I start decaling. And I kind of enjoy the process. And I was thinking, you know, I never really had much problems with decals. That's not quite true. There are times when I've had to overpaint some silvering some blue rider decals you can imagine that, that needed some overpainting sometimes that ju86 uh slash sob t3 that i put up on the my my facebook homepage that people were commenting on that required some painting around the individual letters it was supposed to be letter l but that exploded so it ended up being j <laughs> so you know, I, i've had some problems but it never seemed to bother me i was showing doug and, and scott um my um, 72nd scale Hasegawa Spitfire 8 from Clive Caldwell. And it has two thin black stripes on the spinner. And the decals give it to you as straight lines, <laughs> not as curves. That took a lot of uh, elbow grease to get those straight, but they finally ended up doing it. And I don't know, I kind of like the process. Now, part of it may be I'm just trying to protect my investment. Jim mentioned having a lot, you know, of, of money sunk into um, a decal stock. And I just looked over my shoulder and I have 10 three-inch binders of decals. So there's a lot there. But I, I, I kind of enjoy that process, even though it has its own issues. Uh, maybe part of it is that I'm one of these guys who's kind of afraid of his airbrush. And so the spraying and the masking is a little more intimidating and daunting for me. Although I've done that too. I built a... A key 43 Oscar with all painted insignia. The whole thing was painted, including the 50th Sentai uh, lightning stripe. And that all came out just fine. So, you know, I've done it both ways. But I kind of like decaling. What drives me crazy about decals is, you know, one day you're listening to the Black Crows, it's 30 degrees and uh, it's cold out and the decals don't work. 
And then two days later, it's 70 degrees, it's raining, you're listening to Rush, and everything goes down perfectly. I hate the inconsistency of decals. I wish it was something that every time you used it, you could have a process that worked every time. And at least in my experience, that's not what happens. Everything works with Rush. <laughs> just all Rush all the time. I'm going to allow the Rush reference just, just so everybody knows. <laughs> Just circling back around to Doug, this was kind of, he, he's the one that brought this point up, but, you know, talk about uh, your experience with the decals and airbrushing markings. Well, airbrushing markings happened very recently for me. I was doing, and okay, I'm going to leave the uh, airplane realm for a second, but I am going to say 72nd scale. Um, I was building a Bandai B-Wing Starfighter from Star Wars, and there are orange circle markings on them. Well, those kits come with stickers and decals. I took the sticker, the, the, the framing around the sticker and detacked it a bunch and used that as my, as my stencil to paint the orange circle. And it came out beautifully. I mean, just, I couldn't have been happier. It looked way better than a decal. It had a good finish. It matched the, the craft better than I could have ever hoped. And that was kind of my, my aha moment. I need to do this more often. I think Doug's point about the B-Wing, uh, despite not being aircraft related, is actually perfect. The other thing with, with painting markings is, and, and gets back to sort of how it fits in your process, is you know if you're doing a, a worn subject or a heavily abused subject, say like a B-Wing or like a, a, a Japanese aircraft, although the Himarus are often very well maintained, but it also becomes, it can be a very important part of your weathering process now, right? So with that B-Wing, like... You know, you might want to you might want to throw some hairspray down first and, and then chip the hell out of them, you know, or other markings are the same thing. Like they're not just about they're not a singular stage unto themselves in every build. Right. They're a part of, you know, crossing that boundary between the last parts of your paintwork and getting into some early parts of your weathering. That's where planning a build. If 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 you're keen on it is it becomes really important because you've got to start thinking those things ahead and that's again where mark you know spraying your markings you can spray them thin and have them look abraded you can hairspray chip them you can alter the color of them you know there's all kinds of things you can do when you're painting them versus just putting this straight block of color down which is often well oversaturated for real realism anyways and and you know i think it's just an important it's an important step if you're into weathering models just to to get to spraying your own markings I was just uh, thinking, is that the next level of, of uh, decals is to have weathered decal? Are we going to see that at some point where you have your your nice fresh ones and are they going to come out with some weathered ones at the same time and you can make your choice of of uh, which one you want to put on your airplane? That'd be kind of neat. Well, Bandai, Bandai does that, don't they? I, I don't know. Yeah. That's cool if they do. Well, you already see that a little bit. There are some um, aftermarket sheets with um, a lighter blue on the American Star, for example, for fading, or a lighter blue for the Chinese 12-pointed star for the P-40s, uh, for the upper wings. So you see that a little bit, but, but you know, Chris is absolutely right. It's, it has to be kind of monochrome in how they do it, and it has to be uh, sort of a, a gross effort at the weathering as opposed to a much more finer detail. And I think as the hobby really focuses more and more on the finish of the finished model over the construction, not over, but you know, certainly on the finish, 
you're going to see more and more uh, value in painting on markings so they can be you know uh, altered and weathered and and manipulated in much more fine ways than decals really can do at least at this point well i mean one, one good area there i think is is this conversation around invasion stripes right every almost every decal of an invasion stripe is is as straight as an arrow and you know there's more than a few images floating oh, around the internet. fight starting now you have you have control over how how you apply paint when you're doing markings when you have a mask like if it was a quick job you sometimes see things where there's that little bit of overspray you can put down a decal and then try and recreate the overspray but it's just easier and more realistic to paint it in the first bloody place and on top of that we haven't also talked about the fact that with all but the thinnest decals, then you have to deal with that that ridge around it, right? You've now got two surfaces, and if you're weathering, you've got to deal with that. And that usually means you got to spray a bunch of gloss over it, and who's got time for that crap, right? <laughs> I, want to, I want to get markings down, and I want to get on with it, right? Weathering's, weathering's the fun part, so don't tell me I've got to spend another few days putting clear coats down and sanding the crap out of them. Well, let's stick with aircraft weathering. Uh, John, I think we're going to start with you on this one. Um, the armor modeling community has experienced a real revolution in the last 10 or 15 years in weathering processes, techniques, and products. How many of these techniques do you feel like have been adopted on a wide scale by aircraft modelers? And do you feel like the aircraft modeling community maybe is a little bit behind the armor community with this re- in this regard? Well, I'm probably the last one to ask in this group in the sense that I'm very much a dinosaur in model building. Uh, My sort of hiatus in building has really um, had me avoid a lot of the recent so-called Spanish school of weathering and highly weathering models. And so I focus on construction. And I wonder how many other dinosaurs are out there like me who are kind of nervous that the hobby is really shifting from the construction element more to the finish element. And uh, and they feel maybe a little out of place. It's certainly how I feel sometimes, that I've got to get my game up and start this weathering and start this finishing in multiple layers and laying down very thin different colors and starting off with a black primer and then working yourself up and everything else. You know, that's all fairly new to me anyway. And I think it may intimidate some people. Maybe I'm just projecting, but it certainly intimidates me. And I need to get, get my game up, you know, with that, and that's the, one of the big benefits of the social media, is that it helps me uh, kind of propel myself into a direction that I probably wouldn't have done just on my own. So I like that. Um, so I'll leave it to other members to discuss whether aircraft modeling is sort of behind the curve or not on this. I certainly am still in the, in the flat spot. Okay. I don't think we're behind the curve with aircraft. Um, I think that that so much of what they do with armor can be translated into aircraft, but also within reason. There are extremes that you can go to with armor that you wouldn't with an aircraft, and you have to determine which which technique you like, which technique you think will work for you, without you know uh, overdoing it. I don't know. That's that's kind of the way I look at it. I, I mean, I've, I started weathering aircraft, you know, 25 years ago, the first time I, I threw some watercolor paint over an aircraft and then wiped it off. And, and it's kind of built since then, you know, to what we do now, layering my paint is, is my absolute favorite is to just, you know, 
layer by layer by layer and get different effects. Yeah, I think I think there's quite a bit that can be done. Lots to say on this. In fact, I wrote a piece on this a little while ago, and I think that whether you think that aircraft as a aircraft modeling as a as a category is behind is presupposing that weather a fully weathered thing is the ultimate goal here. And I think that the one nice thing about aircraft is that I I, th- I think there's three ways you can go. You can go with what I call the museum finish, like the pure, absolute, pristine, wonderful looking air aircraft, which I guess is the classic air, airplane type of modeling. There's the highly stylized or the Spanish school, which uh, which has definitely uh, a very keen look to it. And then there's the, you know, the very realistic weathered thing. And I'll tell you, to pull each one of these things off perfectly is a heck of a lot of effort to do that. If you want to do a perfect museum build, it's as much effort, practice, time as you want to have a beautifully weathered thing. And I think that they look great within the context. So if you see them on a table, you see a wonderfully weathered airplane in a beautiful diorama or on a beautifully stylized, um, we call it a base. It, it works. It looks great. If you see something that is beautifully finished to a museum quality finish with one of those informational bases on the bottom of it or beside it like that, it looks great. You know, And I think that to say that what we're behind or ahead, it's just that there's, there's various ways that we can go about doing this getting to the nth level, it doesn't always have to be that it has to be weathered. Yeah, I think Chris makes a really good point. I mean, I think, you know, it's easy to think that we're all heading into this, to heading to the same destination together. And I and I don't think we are. Like John, I, I came back to the hobby. I sort of missed the the whole rise of the, the Spanish influence and and sort of that artistic direction that's, that modeling took. And, you know, which I guess is just as well. It doesn't suit my style, but, you know, as Chris said, I mean, to do it well, it takes an incredible amount of effort and knowledge and forethought. I mean, you can't just mod, uh, you know do color modulation or zenithal lighting and say there it is. I mean, you've got to understand how color and light works to a, a, a high degree. You know, whether we're behind, I don't think we're behind, but I think it's easier to take armor modeling to a, a further extreme, right? You can you can cake a, a tank with mud and all kinds of you know spilled fuel. And it generally just seems to be more in place there. Whereas even aircraft, we, 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 I kind of feel like we, we always view aircraft from a bit of a distance, right? We tend to think of aircraft mostly when we see them flying by. And so we, we rarely have that opportunity, aside from air shows, to get up close and personal with them, uh, unless you happen to have a really good detail book. And it's only at that point that you start seeing, especially like with naval aircraft, you know, the the thing that spawned the whole no crew chief, whatever. Well, <laughs> look at Navy aircraft, right? You do what you need to do when you're in the, in the middle of the ocean. And by the end of a tour, they look brutal mm. and they look beautiful because they're brutal. But, you know, so I don't think we're behind, but I think, you know, I think points made about context are, are really important that A, it depends on what you want to build and B, it depends on, on what you want your style to be. And if you want it to be super clean, make it super clean, but don't think that that makes it any easier than to do it fully weathered. It's just a different skill set. I think this is where I feel a little bit out touch with today's style or today's um, modeling circumstances, because kind of what my goal is, is I want to build basically a warbird that was restored in the 70s or 80s. So it's 
well, it's it's maybe a little too glossy. It doesn't look perfect. I don't want factory finish. I want some weathering, but I don't want to build an aircraft for the most part that looks like it's been through the ringer all the time. That being said, I totally see why people want to build these dirty, beat up airplanes and something like a Navy F-14 or even not that we can talk about this right now, rusted out tank is really attractive. And I can see why people are interested in that. And it's not necessarily authentic, but it is very cool in the more artistic side of things. Uh, the other thing that that I like to look at is look at pictures and whether what you see, not whether what is the trend. And one thing I've noticed this a lot, and again, I'm talking about armor, I'm sorry. I see a lot of chipping going on in armor, and I don't see a whole heck of a lot of chipping in real-life tanks, especially modern tanks. So while I'm not the biggest weathering guy, I, I kind of agree, whatever you choose to do, it's got its own set of challenges, and there's no easier way to do it. And I remember back in the day, and I'm going to start aping uh, David Knights here, is it used to be weathering was considered and you're fixing your mistakes. And I don't think that's true at all. I think a weathering is a different skill set than building clean. And they're all acceptable. You can do whatever you want to do with them. They're all just going to take a different set of skills. Yeah, I think Jim had a good point. And I'm a huge proponent of conceptualizing and having a vision and a plan. You know, And the other thing is there's even there's just some aircraft sometimes that doing a museum style build doesn't work, in, at least for me. And, you know, the P-40 AVG was one example that I did a commission for. And he that's all he wanted was museum style. And I, I sat there and said, this was an airplane that was on like the fringes of civilization. Doing a straight camouflage pattern on it just did not fit my, my, my mindset. I could not let that go out the door without it. And it kind of formulated, because I'm still on this path of getting back to the hobby, it was a key thing to sort of formulate how I how I view weathering. And, and part of that is that there are, you know, there are legacy weathering effects. There are the effects that if you hose that plane down and give it a scrub, that you will still see them. You will see distressing of the paint. You will see really deep staining. Uh, you will see the chips. You will see the wear. And then there's dynamic effects, which are like the accumulation of dust and dirt and that kind of thing. So in, in the end, I ended up still doing what looked like a distressed paint job because it gave it some variation. And while it was nowhere near as abused as what you would see in the photos, it to me already looked miles ahead of you know what you would see in a museum style build as far as an appropriate re- representation, which is not to say that of course anybody needs to follow that, but it just in in my conceptual vision of it, it needed some degree of variation to realize it as an authentic version of what that plane was actually like, and of course that's going to be different for everybody. You just got to figure out where that line is. What do the owner think of your of your build? Called it a work of art. So, I mean, that's that's all that matters to me, right? Perfect. There you go. I think um, Luftrum just dropped the mic right there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, well, let's uh, sort of stay on a related topic. Uh, Jim, I want to start with you on this one. It's uh, aircraft modelers turn to respond. Um, a few episodes back on the Posse, we had a listener who I uh, self-identified as an aircraft modeler, John Bryan from the UK, the great guy. But he posited that the armor modeling community is more collaborative and has a little bit less tribalism than aircraft modelers do. Um, obviously, it's a generalization, but I'd like to get each of your perspectives on, on, on this. Well, I think the first issue is there's issues in all communities. There's always a few jerks. 
my experience with this is for the most part, yes, I've run into airplane modeler jerks. I've run into ship modeler jerks. But I would say mostly the community is great. As far as being collaborative, it's interesting. I think one of the things I always have in my mind is we've got, you know, Adam Wilder, Mike Rinaldi, and Uncle Nightshift in the armor world, and they're kind of the armor guys. And we've got Martin doing this amazing YouTube channel that we're all talking about all the time. And I don't see that in aircraft, and I don't know why. I don't know if we're looking, everybody's looking at different things. I don't know why the armor world seems to be more represented by by a group of modelers than the aircraft world, because there's lots of great aircraft modelers, but there's nobody that we're saying, hey, it's Friday, night shift will be on. I always wonder if this has a little bit to do, at least here in the US, with how modeling is presented. And I don't want to use the word shows, but 90% of, well, 95% of American modeling in the outside world is contests. And I wonder if there is still a group of people, misguided people, who think, I can't tell anybody anything because then I'm going to lose the contest. One, that's a sad way to look at things. But two, we need to move away from this contest model. We need to look at display and enjoying what we're doing and inspiring rather than I got number one, you know, because it is any given Sunday. It's what three dudes or two dudes thought was the best looking model on the table. It is not you're a great modeler, you are a terrible modeler. And I think with kind of the amp style, I think you have a little bit more wiggle room and maybe that style of judging has impacted how the two groups look at each other. I'm a big fan of gold, silver, bronze. I'm not as big a fan as one, two, three. I'm a huge fan of display only. We do a show up here at the Museum of Flight that's nothing but thousands of models on display. We have one award, curators of the museum pick it. I have learned it basically needs to be a Boeing project, project and really big. So a, a, like a 132nd scale B-29 would, would win that every time. But everything doesn't need to be about competition. And, and maybe this is me being a nefarious foreigner and growing up in Canada, but we don't always need to be number one. It should be more inspiring. It should be more educational. And, and I like the show concept where we do that and we have you know civilians coming in who aren't modelers and maybe we inspire them to model rather than them going to a show, not getting first place and being upset. Um, well... I don't think there's a shortage of jerks in any category. In fact, outside of the hobby, be it my participation in sports leagues, uh, professional, other, uh, other hobbies, there is no shortage of people who will gleefully crap on what you're doing. But the, but the focus is, I think it's the minority. And, and no matter where you go, it is the minority. But I know where the sentiment comes from. In fact, I could tell you that my first contest that I ever went to where I was, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed and I, I was so excited to be there and I put my out of box build right on the table and, and just sort of apprehensive about, oh my God, I don't want to, uh, to embarrass myself here. And I looked over and there was a, a gentleman and he was putting down this, um, it was a teen fighter of some description, but it was just amazing. I mean, it was wow. Like that thing was just killer. And here I was, and I walked over like, like this is something normal to do. I walked over and I said, that is a fantastic model. How did you do? And I can't remember what I asked, but I bet it was something with panel lines or has something to do with the decals. It, it doesn't matter. I said, how did you do X? And the look the guy gave me was just as if I kicked his cat in the head. It was just this horror, look of horror. And he quickly finished what he was doing on the table and made a beeline to the exit. And I just sort of stood there and I thought, well, that's odd. That's an odd thing. 
do. And later on, I found out, I talked to some, some modelers about it and they said, oh, he's probably worried that if he tells you, then, you know, you're going to be able to beat him someday at the tables or something like that. Well, this guy was miles ahead. Like we're talking, we're talking years ahead of me. And, and my, my last thing I'll say about that is he's a <laughs> very much the minority. I think that uh, after that incident, I never had anything like that. But I tell you, every time I go to a show, someone does ask me a question about something that I'm putting on the table. I do make the effort to stand there and explain exactly what I did. And my, my theory is this, like the best baseball player in the world can sit you down and go through exactly how he hits a home run. Okay. You're not going to walk in there and do the exact same thing. Not until you're ready to do that. Not until you've put the time in and, and the ability, et cetera, et cetera. So of course you're supposed to share this stuff. It's fun. And uh, if you can help somebody else out and get them involved in the hobby, absolutely do it. Well, um, I took your question, I guess, a different way. So we'll, we'll, there are two answers about tribalism. You know, one is at an individual level. Are people, in, you know, are people jerks or not? Are people considerate or not? Um, and that does vary with individuals. And, you know, you work hard. You work very hard trying to make the hobby as inclusive and as welcoming as possible. Um, I started a group. Oh, 20 some years ago called the Divine Scale Society. People who like building 72nd scale uh, models, mostly aircraft, but some, some military vehicles as well. We have a meetings once a month. It's very social for a, what can be a very isolating hobby. But the entire time, it's never been an exclusion of other scales. People come to build 35th scale armor. They come to build cars and whatever. And yeah, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. I find that a lot of the anger that people have seems to come from being defensive and when they're feeling threatened. So this modeler may have felt threatened that his hegemony over model contests was going to be threatened, you know, so he's not going to share his secrets or whatever. That's been very rare uh, in my experience. And I think consciously focusing on making it as inclusive as possible. And that's fine. It's when people start, you know, I guess I get a little defensive when people start attacking 72nd scale as a you know, sub-variant or sub-scale of some sort, which is happening less and less as time goes on. Then, you know, that's, that's where that, that sort of um, defensiveness kind of comes up. You know, we have a fantastic modeler in Northeast Ohio named Mark Smith, who just does phenomenal work. I wonder if there's a Dorian Gray closet somewhere where he has these horrible models <laughs> and this, these magical things just pop out that he does uh, but he's very open and very um sharing in how he does things so that certainly has not been my experience that people are are uh, very uh, stingy in terms of you know tribalism in terms of different scales for example or different genres or different eras of models that can occur but that takes a conscious effort to keep things um inclusive and i'm kind of curious about the armor modelers is there the same kind of 35th versus 72nd scale versus 48th nowadays, kind of competition, you see, maybe even a friendly competition? Um, or is 35th scale so dominant that it really is not that relevant? I think it's probably more the latter. I think all of you probably have built at least a little bit of armor, and that's certainly more of what I build. But the 35th scale is so dominant, like you said. And I think a lot of 35th scale modelers, again, we're all generalizing here, but I think they view 48 scale and 72nd scale armor almost like palette cleanser uh, builds or distraction builds because you know they'll get in, they'll get involved in in a 35th scale build and it'll take them a year and they want something you know kind of quick or different 
Well, we all know 72nd is the divine scale and 48th is the devil scale. But no, I think what's interesting to me, and, and this was brought to, to light at uh, the Nationals, is I think the one thing I do see with aircraft modelers is if you are trophy hunting, you're going to pick the same topics. And I think that's one of the things I get frustrated with is I was at the Nationals a few years ago, and I don't remember what year this was, and there was nothing but a whole table of Tamiya P-47s. And the reason for that is that's a great kit. If you're going to win an award, that's a great way to start because it's pretty much perfect. And then you can just put it together. And I think the downside of that is we don't see different aircraft. Nobody, unless they're supremely talented, is going to take a Mach 2 kit and try to win an award with it. And if they do, awesome. But you're going to see safer choices. And that's where I think that the contest mentality really sucks is instead of building, and I think we all build what we like, but instead of building something that might not necessarily be perfect and then seeing something weird and cool on the table, we see a whole bunch of Tamiya kits. So I hope John didn't peruse my article from a few years ago where I openly asked if 72nd scale is still relevant. And uh, and, I, and the premise behind that was is when when I think back to when I first got in the hobby, my, uh, my, my 72nd scale uh, experience was horrible. Like the, the kits were all bad. Um, they were all putty monsters and like that. But to Jim's point, the stuff coming out in 72nd now is night and day different. It is absolutely amazing stuff and it fits together well. It's well engineered. So it's actually a pleasure to put these things together compared to what it used to be. Yeah. I got to say with ClearProp, it, it's amazing to the point where I almost want to say just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> the, the the fineness of detail that is in their kits, uh, and this goes right back to the first one, the um, the Claude, like the rivet detail, the panel lines are, if you are not delicate with your paint application, you'll see a lot of really good work disappear, which, I mean, to sit there and look at it as bare plastic, it's, it's just, it goes right back to, to what fills my bowl, right? But... <laughs> I'll be honest, my spray discipline hasn't come far enough yet that I'm ready to paint those things. <laughs> there's there's like 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 we said, there's no there's nothing being done at the high end of 72nd scale that you can't find in in any of the larger scales. And, you know, hopefully people who only think that life truly exists in the larger scales will will pick one of these up as a palette cleanser and maybe have their eyes opened a little bit. I also wonder whether geography plays into that a little bit as well. I mean, I feel like here in North America we all have you know, this aspiration to have big houses and big rooms and big areas to display things. And I know from my experience, 148th and 132nd scale kits were always the ones that people aspired to. Nobody aspired to buy and build 172nd because they just didn't have visual presence. And yet it's anecdotally, it seems like that's not the reality elsewhere, right? Now it has picked up as obviously if, if, as companies have worked to fuel a North American driven need. And, and I, I may be off base on that, but I don't feel like 172nd was quite the the redheaded stepchild elsewhere that it was maybe in North America. But mar North American market being what it is can kind of affect things globally. And, and so we've seen a shift away from that in some respects. But I mean, it's still, it's the best balance of detail and size. And frankly, what other scale can I buy a ship? Can I buy a plane? Can I buy a tank? Can I buy a spacecraft? You know, if you have any interest at all in seeing the relative presence of things on your shelf, there is no better scale than 72nd to do that. 
you just hit on about four of my uh, discussion topics. <laughs> that was great. Maybe just steering back for a moment to the tribalism thing, uh, Luftrum, what, what's your experience been? Honestly, I, I probably am not the greatest person to speak on this. I, I modeled in isolation pretty much my whole life. I, I sort of finally, I'm one of these uh, excitable introverts or whatever they call them who drop me in a social situation and I can't help myself. But given a choice, I would probably steer away from that social situation in the first place. So I hadn't gone to really any shows until Heritage Con 2018 or 2019, which is where I first met John Bonani. Just on a sort of a whim made the decision, I'm going to drive drive the two and a half hours and check out the show. And I thought, this is great. I'm going to do the next one. And then we got into to the pandemic. So that kiboshed that. So I've had very little experience with armor modelers and aircraft modelers aside from from interactions on social media, which given sort of the global nature of it are kind of sketchy at best at times. You know, I can say for myself, I generally make it a mission that if anybody asks me for help, I will be there to give it. I believe you learn things multiple times. Once when you learn it yourself, another time when you teach it to somebody else. You know, the best way to learn something is to teach it because it causes you to look at it from a completely different way. And frankly, if somebody learns a technique from me and ha we happen to be on the same contest table and they beat me, good for you. I mean, there's nothing I can put into that negatively that that I should be carrying with me. I mean, if somebody over time picks up, you know, that that analogy of learning to hit a home run, if somebody eventually is a better home run hitter than me and I was able to help guide them on that path, that is that is a rich thing to have in your life to be able to to help people. So I'm, you know, now that said there are there are things that I play with that sometimes I will not sort of announce or tell people about until I'm ready because it can just be a mess to try and describe a half-baked process, but whether whether we have more tribalism in, in, in aircraft modeling, at least people being bigger assholes, I, I can't say that for sure. I think we have them, as was said by Chris, we have, we have those people everywhere. And unfortunately, in every arena, they are the loudest people in general. So it's, it's hard to ignore them. But I don't, think it's, I don't think it's any worse in aircraft than it is anywhere else. I think that uh, sometimes the problems we see with the tribalism is there's a lot of people out there with zero social awareness. And they just say what's on their mind and they don't take time to think about it. Um, in the end, it's it's not always easy to do, but where are they coming from? And are we taking things too seriously? Are we overreacting to their reaction? I don't know. I, I've seen the same, same thing from all kinds of uh, different aspects of modeling. Uh, armor people can be rivet counters just like aircraft people can, um, although they're usually more color and right, you know, you've got the wrong turret on that tank kind of people, which is fine as long as they, they find the right way to say it. I have a, I have a good friend that, I mean, I'm going to go totally off the, off the, the reservation here, but I have a, a friend who, who runs a reptile room. He, he basically has it as an educational place. And he told me once, he said, he said, I started talking to a friend about his Warhammer stuff. And I was so grateful to realize that reptile people aren't the only ones who are like that because <laughs> modelers can do it too. But it, the reptile hobby and then any other hobby or any other thing you're into, there's going to be people with attitude who think they are the end-all, beat-all of knowledge and they're going to to make sure you know it. That's a great point, Doug. And I want to I maybe circle around quickly um, on this because we've all focused on the negative um, part of that theory. 
But let's focus on the positive part of the theory. Maybe it isn't so much that aircraft modelers are jerks or however you want to label it, but since you guys are all involved in the aircraft community, you're all great modelers, could aircraft modelers do a better job of collaborating and helping each other? Chris, let's start with you on, on that. Let's let's look at the positive side of that. Well, I have to say that uh, that first interaction, it was stupid on my end, but that first interaction kind of prevented me from joining the local IPMS. And it wasn't until sometime later when I actually started talking with people and I got these great interactions and I got this, this great sharing. It's like, Hey, actually these, these guys are pretty good. Like, uh, and, and, and there's a lot of them and they're very friendly. So I think that in terms of what we can do to improve that, that thing is just make it more that we have more awareness that people might not be, uh, the same path that we're on and to be, you know, to volunteer to help. I, I don't think it's anything more difficult than that. Well, um, my experience has um, been that aircraft modelers and and modelers in general are very welcoming and very open and very friendly. Uh, Certainly, I've moved around the country. I've moved from Chicago to San Francisco to New York to Cleveland and then out to Salt Lake City. And everywhere I've been, one of the first things I do is to look up the local IPMS chapter. My experience has been it's been very welcoming and very open, a few exceptions here and there, but they sort of get weeded out over time. And the, the general um, atmosphere has been welcoming and, um, you know, and very inclusive. Uh, can it stretch beyond that, beyond IPMS and the chapters to um, other places? Perhaps I think we're doing that right here, trying to make a broader reach out to various aircraft modelers and keeping it positive and keeping it friendly. And maybe one way to do it I think Jim had a really good point, too, is that so much of our formal social interaction here in North America is built around contests, which is inherently competitive. And um, to have more group displays and and group builds, um, I think, would be really helpful. You know, that that Divine Scale group I led for 20 years in Cleveland, we had an annual group build, and that was a fantastic venue to get people to work together and to support each other and and to really um, motivate people to build. And it was uh, very purposely inclusive of people of all different skill levels. And so that didn't always translate to the highest award at the show, but I didn't care about that. What I cared about was having people feel welcomed and people feel like their work was valued by others. Um, and that seemed to help. So maybe more sort of group projects for example, maybe more displays in local libraries or local museums uh, may get people doing that. I know that certainly has motivated Jim having some displays for the Museum of Flight. So that that's kind of what I can say on that topic. Yeah, I'd, I'd echo those comments from both John and Jim as well about sort of the competitive aspect of it. I think anytime that you you put things into a competitive framework, you're at the very least inviting problems. Now, and especially probably with a group of people who don't generally, or or maybe by and large, are as used to getting out and being social, maybe as some other hobbies or, or activities. But what do they say? A rising tide lifts all lifts all ships, right? And that's where sort of the the open judging system, uh, I think, really is valuable to a hobby that you have a lot of people at different levels and with different conceptual visions of their build. 
right? You know, what's going to turn somebody or what's going to throw somebody into a frenzy faster than somebody saying, well, you know, the only reason you voted for that one over this one was because you like the Spanish style and you don't like true realism. You know, so you create, you open the road to a lot of biases and, and, and that kind of thing. You know, whereas, you know, and, and anytime you have that situation, like you said, you're going to start having uh, gatekeeping of, of certain techniques and, and habits and whatnot that if somebody thinks that is their their winning edge, well, if they're serious competitors, why are they going to give it to you? You don't see that in, in a lot of other arenas. And I think that's unfortunate. I think that not to open the IPMS can of worms, but, you know, for an organization that, that preaches about sort of bringing all modelers along and then sort of at the sharp end suddenly just saying, okay, now you're all competing against each other. It's a bit of a, a, a dichotomy, right? You know, not to say that it's not exciting to find out who the best is at any one thing, but that is almost, I think, an over and above kind of thing once everybody else kind of knows where they sit. You know, to echo that lift drum, we had Ivan uh, Jensen Taylor on our show a few episodes ago, and he was talking about Scale Model World at Telford. And he said, you've got all these hangars and buildings full of models. The actual models that are competing against each other is one small little area. And most of the rest of it, to Jim's earlier point, are displays and club displays and you know, so you're still getting that collaboration with other modelers and you're seeing all everybody else's work, but there's much less of a focus on my models better than yours and more of a focus on look at this terrific work. And I think that's a great thing too. I mean, you know, I, I know a lot of builders aren't big on the history, but, you know, as somebody who has had the odd person say, oh, you build things that blow up and kill people. There is something to be said for, I think, having an appreciation for uh, I think it was it was John maybe who said earlier about why did these things come about and and what was their role and sure a lot of them for a lot of them the role wasn't pleasant but at the same time it, it also showed great innovation for us as a people and you know I think it's important that we we build you know some of the time that we build these things with some context as to why they exist and be able to share that with other people and and having those kind of displays that are focused around whether it's specific pilots I mean we just had one of Canada's great great aces of World War II, James Stocky Edwards celebrated his 100th birthday this year. And I had really hoped to get a build done for that uh, than Squirrel. You know, but we need, like, if we don't if we don't celebrate some of this context and this history, then we lose that. And we just look at these things in a very narrow view. That's a great point, Chris. And just to put a smaller, finer point on that point, uh, Left made a comment about someone making uh, some sort of a a comment that he is building something that killed people, et cetera, you know, just because the original machine might have done that by building a model of it doesn't mean left is standing behind that sentiment or representing that sentiment or saying that that sentiment is something he believes in. He's making a model and he's doing a good job doing it. Yeah, exactly. Jim, we haven't heard from you for a bit. I think one of the other interesting things that's really easy is the change in quality in 70-second scale kits. Um, these aren't your old, you know, these aren't your grandma's Airfix kits that we're building these days. And I think in many ways, 72nd are as well-detailed as 48th, which may not have been the case a few years ago or maybe 10 years ago. That being said, there are these masochistic modelers out there who take these terrible kits. I'm thinking about a guy named John and a beech nut um, Vaulty vibrator that really never should be built and turn them into masterpieces. And I think there is a subgenre of the hobby that loves that. 
I know there is a subgenre of the hobby that loves taking the old Airfix kits and, and bringing them up to uh, snuff. One of my favorite modelers out there is Mike Grant, and he he spent a few years taking all these old Airfix kits and came up with things that are better than anything on my shelf, and, and that's talent. I think the other thing that's interesting, and this was something that was brought up by Spencer Pollard when he was on, is what is our goal with these models? Are we, you know, it used to be we built the model and maybe we looked at it, or maybe we took it to the club. And now we're in this world where we share everything on photographs, we share everything on Facebook. And I think there's no question that a model that you build to look in real in, in person is going to maybe built differently than a model you're going to photograph, because I think a photograph shows something different than you would see in person. So I think what everybody needs to do is just do what feeds them. What do they want? What are their goals? And I think we need to, as modelers and as aircraft modelers, think about what is, what are we trying to create and what is, what are we trying to put out? Are we trying to build a model that looks good in a picture? Are we trying to build a model that wins at a contest? Are we trying to build a model that just looks cool? Or do we build a model that just sits on our shelf and nobody ever looks at? Well, let's see, there's, there's a, I guess, a couple points. That, that last point was how different people value or, or, or conceptualize their work and, and what really motivates them. And for some people, it's dragon slaying. It's taking these old kits or these subpar kits and turning something halfway decent out of them. Um, you know, there was a contest we had locally at our chapter, um, a uh, sow's ear contest. You know, so take a sow's ear and make a silk purse out of it. And my entry was a beech nut. That's what Jim was related, was alluding to. Um, my entry was a beech nut um, Valiant, a BT-13 Valiant. And, uh, you know, that was not the easiest thing in the world. Um, but some people really enjoyed that. Um, you know, I had rescribed the Frog Maryland, Martin Maryland, which has a lot of lines in it, as it turns out. And, um, and the moment I had finished rescribing it, Jim sends me a picture of the Azure kit <laughs> that had just come out. So that was my contribution to the modeling gods there. But I do enjoy um, making something decent out of something pretty crappy. That's kind of what I do enjoy. So some people like that is I wanted to, to speak to this whole issue that you know contests really highlight of the balance between internal justification and external justification. That is your internal concept of what you want to do? How do you want your hobby to go? Um, whether it's slaying dragons or building the latest uh, Tamiya or Arma kit, there's no right or wrong. It's just what people like to do. Uh, if you're going to try to slay dragons, you're going to have an uphill battle when it comes to an IPMS contest because they tend to focus on, for fairness sake, you know, they tend to focus on flaws and on things that don't go well. So all that rescribing on the Frog Maryland there's going to be some not so straight lines on that. Bonk, out it goes. And, um, you know, and that's just something you need to, to balance. It's hard for some people, and I might be one of them, I, I definitely am one of them, um, to try to hold off the lure of external justification of saying that my model is better, my efforts are better, my, my quality of a person is better because I get rewarded at a contest. Or because I win an award, that's a it's a tough siren call to try to avoid. I've lashed myself to the mast by trying to not enter contests for a while to try to avoid that, and I've seen it come out just recently um, when I I changed my my Facebook um, home picture from the Spitfire group build 
to a that JU-86, that Italy JU-86 in Swedish markings, just out of boredom. I was sick of the, not sick, but I was just, I thought, I thought like a, a different picture. And boom, 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 I started getting all these likes and started getting all these comments about it. And it's really motivating, <laughs> you know, and, and I need to be able to put that aside more and balance my own needs and my own desires for how I want my hobby to go and try to not depend so much of my self-esteem on how it gets rewarded. That's a, that's a great point, John. You know, one of the things that I will say um, as a longtime modeler is that all of us are our own worst critics and we all tend to be, as Luftram has said, we all tend to be solitary. And so we, we get alone and we build and we judge our own work and we pick it apart. You know, I've seen some of your work, not, not all of you, um, but I've seen some of your work and sometimes the, the work that I see that you guys do, you say, oh, this is no good. And I look at it and I'm just blown away by it, you know, and it's something where I think that one of the reasons we do the podcast and why communities are so important is not so much from a competition standpoint, but I think you know, getting together and building each other up is really, really important. We all tend to be that guy that, you know, Luftram has raised his hand and said, I kind of tend to be the guy that hides in my basement. That's all of us. And so we're being too hard on ourselves. We're maybe building, trying to compare ourselves to night shift or somebody else. And I think it's important to build each other up and say, man, Doug, that that's amazing. That's really inspirational. Or you know, Jim, that 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 Spitfire looks terrific. I just I just think that's that's really important. And on the other side of the contesting, and we're going on about you know how it might not be healthy. I I really get inspired when I go to a contest and I just go up and down the tables and I see something that just I've never seen before or a technique that just blows me away. Even if someone, if I ask them about, it, they go running away and they never talk to me. At least I see how they did it on the model. And I always come away with something, at least one thing where I'm coming home thinking, man, I, I got to try something like that. Or I got to do something like that. So there, we, we, we're crapping on contests a little bit, but at the same time, there are some, some good things to come about as well. Well, I think the other thing about being our own worst critic, and this is why community is important, is we know everything that's happened. So if you've had a, a tough paint job and there's a few warts here and there and, and that kind of thing you know everything that went into getting it to that point, right? And then you put it out there. Well, in putting it out there, you've already put yourself ahead of a lot of people who who don't have that comfort or whatever. And yet you, you put it out there and people just see this this build in a moment in time, right? They don't, they, it's, like, it's like when you're walking down the street and you kind of trip over sideway crack, sidewalk crack and you catch yourself. But you sit there and you have this immediate sense of embarrassment that's, oh my gosh, you know, and you kind of go all apoplectic and then you realize that nobody saw it. <laughs> and so why did you go all crazy for, right? Like, and it's the same, so it's the same kind of thing. Like, we know everything that went in. We know all the trials and tribulations and, and we carry that with us. And so when we sit there and we put it up, we say, oh, it's not that good. I mean, I felt that way about the camouflage on the 109. And in the end, once it was weathered and everything... I don't feel the same way, but at the time it was like, it did not work. I was having trouble. I've since discovered why I should have known better. It was a thing about coming back to the hobby that I had to relearn. And in the end, it wasn't the end of the world. But at that time, putting it out there, it's just like, I felt like a 
you know, it was almost ready for strip and repaint. And frankly, it was community saying, you know what, that looks really good that you have to stand back and check yourself and, and stop being so close to the work and say, you know, you've got to put faith in what other people say as well. And it's easy to hear a lot of attaboys and, and whatever, but you need that to balance off your own self-critique. I think the other thing that runs into, and, and, and this is what happened to me, I think I'd said earlier that I have been building for a long time. I haven't been finishing as long as I would like. And I think what we run into is we are all so f- focused or we get focused or we just get wrapped around the axle about external validation instead of looking at what we're trying to accomplish. And I think what you're what you need to look at is what do you, what do I, Jim, want to build? Or what does Chris or Chris, what is the what is our goal instead of looking for external validation? And I think one of the things why I kind of rant about contests is say you're a new builder, you think you've done a really good job, you show up at the show, you, you're competitive, but you don't get that first or you don't get that second, or maybe you just get the honorable mention. And then it, 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 in our brains, we start to say, well, I'm no good and this isn't good enough and this is not what we're here for. And it starts taking the fun out of the hobby and makes it a job. And I've already got a job and I'm looking to do this fun. And I think the way we look at it is we turn inward instead of outward for validation. And what am I trying to accomplish? What is a good model to me? Not what does three dudes at IPMS or online think is perfect. Build what build for you, build for fun. Don't look for the external validation and don't end up in the situation I was in for 10 years that you kind of ended up, nothing was ever good enough. I threw away so many models because they weren't good enough because I had this unrealistic expectation of what my models should look like. And once I kind of backed down off of that, I started finishing models again and it was fun again. So don't allow this to become a job. Don't allow this to allow other people to determine how you model. Um, I was just going to say, you know, we may have people at, at shows that don't want to share what they've done to get what that effect or that, that process that you want to learn. But look to uh, the internet. We, for every person that won't teach us their, their ideas, there are half a dozen people on YouTube that will. And usually they do it in a very entertaining way and they do it in a very positive way. And um, it can be a lot of fun. Where else uh, do you learn new techniques anymore? And then there's a, there's a few guys, few kooks that have these blogs that also show these techniques as well. You can find them every, every now and then. The biggest challenge, the biggest challenge with 172nd is getting sometimes tight enough with a camera that you can actually show what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, I, I've had people that have asked me to do things and I do my best to explain it, which is where that exercise comes in about learning something a second time when you try to, when you try to teach it and you sit there and go, if I just, if my camera would just take a bloody picture of that effect, which on a 132nd or even a 148th would be a no brainer. Once you get into 172nd, it's like, oh crap, you know? A thousand words is that, you know, instead of that picture. And the, you know, the other challenging thing sometimes with teaching is, and, and, and sort of this, this relativism to our own skill sets is, you know, we, a lot of people have an inclination to teach to their level. And one of the challenges sometimes with helping other people who are coming along is, is gauging where they are at in their own mind so that you can offer the kind of information that they need at that time. It doesn't do any good to say, oh, well, you should use this technique and this technique if those techniques are sort of a couple of years still ahead of them. The most successful interactions I've had with people have often, you know, they would say, oh, can you explain how you do that? Evolve 
five questions back from me saying, well, like, where are you? What are you familiar with? You know, so that I know where they're at before I start saying, well, you should do this and this and this, because not those, those steps aren't always the right ones. If they're not, if that doesn't reflect where they're at as a builder, you know, and that can, that can be challenging sometimes because, you know, the, the, the people who are brand new, but eager to learn, you know, are often the ones that are hardest to gauge, but that's an important part of, of that teaching process. And maybe that's what scares some people away. Well, I think, you know, as I said before, one of the things that really kicked my butt for quite a while is expecting perfection and expecting every model I build to be perfect, whatever the heck that means. Now, first of all, I'm not sure what a perfect model is. Two, I'm not sure we could ever build a perfect model. But I think the point here is, as I said before, fun. Let's have a good time. Let's do this. Let's build a community. Let's be excited. Talk about with our friends. And speaking of, of friends, one of the things that I have in my head is a Shakespeare quote that uh, John Vitka sent me a long time ago. And it says, our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we might often win by fearing to attempt. And I went deep into the fear of I was scared to do everything. And, and I'm still not sure how I broke out of it other than moving to the West Coast, I guess, just being in a better place. But I think the other thing that does exist with all of this is our health, our state of mind. And I think it's really easy to end up getting so wrapped around the axle, so messed up in this hobby that you're, you psych yourself out. You know, I spend a lot of time listening to music, too much time listening to music. And I want to think in, in kind of my life and my model building, I take the Neil Young approach of let's just go and do it. Let's just make it happen. Unfortunately, I think what I do is I end up using the Steely Dan approach, which is everything must be perfect all the time. And, and I repaint everything three times. And I think that leads to the lack of fun. I joke sometimes that I have two hobbies, building models and stripping paint. I wish I could sometimes get over that and learn it's, it's, you know, it's just a box of plastic. And often it's a 10 or 15 or 20 or $50 box of plastic. It's not the end of the world. So just experiment and see things through. And don't allow yourself to get sidetracked because it's not good enough, whatever that means. I only did that for 20 years. And this goes back to something that, that a different friend of mine here in Seattle said, and he's an amazing modeler, Tim. And he talked about, well, what's your plan for getting better? Because I was the guy who used to always say, oh, I'm saving this kit for when I get better. I'll save the nice Tamiya kit for when I get better and build the Airfix kit that I built in 1972 as a kit. Well, okay, I didn't build it in 1972, but 1978. So I think what we just need to do is change our perspective instead of looking at what is perfect is look at how are we improving. And I think related to that, there's a lot of people out there who are more than willing to share their techniques. There's a lot of YouTube you can look at. You know, we live in this magical world where it used to be all you had were magazines. And sometimes it's hard to learn from magazines. Now you just go on YouTube and there's 100 million videos on everything that will teach you how to improve your process. And I think we also need to remember that this is all very personal and individual. And what works for me or what works for Scott or what works for JV, these are all different things. And we're all going to take something different from us. And the one thing, and I hate to get into the is art modeling because I don't really think it is, but we need to approach it differently. And you can tell what's a Picasso or what's a Monet or what's a Manet by their style. And I think we need to all look at what is our style and what do we want to accomplish as modelers. I want to ask each of you about, um, you know, you guys have, this has been a fantastic conversation and this has really spurred some thoughts in me, but 
uh, maybe start Chris with you on this one, but for me, um, failure has always been a great teacher. You know, we, we want, we always want to, when we sit down at our bench and we open the shrink wrap on that new kit, we always have a picture in our mind of what it's going to be. We want that perfect model, but is it okay to fail and to make mistakes? Because doesn't that long-term make us all better at, at this hobby? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> there are there are a lot of failures, and uh, the be- the beauty of it is you uh, you don't have to live with them. So you can fail, and you can uh, break something, and you just go around. This is not expensive. You're, you're not th- talking thousands of dollars down the drain. If somewhere along the line of a build I have failed, I can either fix it, or I think that that whole idea of learning from mistakes is the reason why we have our shelves of doom. We're not willing. We're not quite willing to let that one go. It might have failed at one time, but maybe we know that we're going to have a skill set someday, or we're going to learn a new technique. We're going to we're going to come across something, so we're not going to let that one go. It's going to stay there maybe for a couple of years, but we're going to get back to it. And I think that just from my sports uh, sporting days. I learned more from striking out than I did from actually getting a hit the first time off a pitcher, right? So it's the same thing with this. You're going to learn more about the mistake and why, and thinking about why you made that mistake. The next time around, you're going to switch it up and you're going to have success. Well, um, I, I had a patient um, a couple months ago say the phrase, it's not failure, it's feedback. And I love that phrase um, because it's very helpful to get rid of the negativity, get rid of the, the negative self-image that goes along with the word failure and see it as a positive element of learning a new skill or being more comfortable with a new technique or whatever it might be. So it really is feedback, not failure. At a, con- at a logical conceptual level, I certainly understand that and, and I, I practice that. But, uh, I mean, I, I expand that and, and say that to patients in my practice. But at a personal level, it's pretty tough. In my particular experience, back in the you know '90s, so we're we're talking about a different millennium here. You know, my my models consistently won regional awards. The problem is that set my level of what failure was to not win a regional. And so whenever I came across a problem where it looked like it may not be there, there was a flaw that came up, something else happened, then forget it. And off to the shelf of doom it went, hopefully for some later time. Because like, you know, like Chris said, you don't want to give up on it entirely, but you don't want to quite do it right now either, because it may not be, quote, good enough, whatever that means for the individual. So uh, at an individual level, I think getting over this whole idea that failure is just not even part of it. Let's just get rid of that whole word and say this is all a building process and all an individual process and enjoy the hobby like you enjoy it. And maybe to even start to enjoy some of the warts that come along with, with the smooth services may take away from some of that internal, internal negativity that some people really get stalled by, me being one of them. I always I always learn from mistakes. Um, sometimes mistakes become a, a great opportunity to try a new weathering technique. You know, let's hide this instead of fixing it. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's... I've, I've built uh, kits that I screwed up in the past and bought a new one and started from scratch and said, now let's do this right. So yeah, it's, it's always, it's always easy to, to, to learn from mistakes. Just don't let it get you down. Cause a lot of times those mistakes get you angry and those anger, the anger makes you fling an airplane into the corner of the room, which 
you know, I haven't done for a very long time, but it's happened. The, the circular bin, the, you know, the garbage off it goes, but and it can get you down and it can keep you from wanting to start over again, but you just learn and keep going. Don't give up. I'm just going to echo the basic premise that everybody has said. I mean, when something doesn't go right, the only way you fail is if you don't take something forward from it. You know, conversely, succeeding is just finding one way to do thing, do something. So if you have a specific thing in mind and you and you achieve that, okay, well, you figured out one way to do it, which is great in that moment. But it, you know, it doesn't, I think, do as much for you sometimes as failing would. Right. Because, you know, in, in understanding sometimes why things don't work, we actually learn more about it than when we succeed and figure out it does work. Uh, and I've, you know, I've experienced that in my design career a ton of times. I mean, you think you've got the perfect solution, you pitch it to a client, and the client says it doesn't work for these any number of reasons. And that brief interaction suddenly gives me a much broader appreciation of what the client was after. And I actually come back with something that is is a magnitude of order stronger than what I originally pitched because you know, it elicited things that were otherwise just sort of in the ether. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, you have to fail. If you don't fail, you don't learn. If you don't learn, you don't grow. You know, I could throw out cliches until the cows come home. You know, it just, you have to remember like <laughs> failure, failure is not a, is not a momentary thing. You like what I did there, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> like Doug said, don't, don't get caught in the moment that this something didn't work. It needs to go in the bin. It needs to fly across the room. You know, failure needs a period of reflection. It needs you to understand why it didn't why it didn't work. Because sometimes you can save it. Sometimes it goes on the shelf of doom. It, it you realize that you don't have the skills to accomplish what your vision was at that time, and it just needs time. It just needs, and sometimes it just needs you to step away from it, stop being such an ass to yourself, and come back at it. You know, when the mountain's visible, or when the rain's not flying sideways, or you know, you're back to playing rush again. <laughs> I think that's a good point about education. Um, I'm far from an educator. I'm a lawyer, so I just tell everybody what they do wrong instead of trying to teach them. But I see that point sometimes online with with getting kids into the hobby and make and takes. And well, they're not, you know, painting it authentically. And I think, you know, as we've talked about, there's certain gatekeeping. You know, just because you're building a Spitfire doesn't mean it has to be in Day Fighter. You know, there's a lot of different ways you can do things. And if you choose to take a more flighty way, that doesn't mean it's a bad model. It's just not an authentic model. And, you know, I see this again, and I know we're supposed to be talking about airplanes, but son, it's kind of some of the lack of the acceptance of science fiction, which I think that's going away. And now Gundams, it's all modeling. It's all fun. It's all, it's all the same thing. We can all expand the community, be inclusive of everybody and still enjoy what we're doing. And what other people are doing is not a reflection on us. Like I am the old school guy. I want to recreate the picture of the Spitfire that was taken in 1943. But it doesn't mean that somebody else is doing it, is doing it wrong or doing it differently. The other thing I want to kind of point out is I'm not sure not finishing is failure. I often look at it as failure. But it leads to other things. And if I don't finish this project, it doesn't mean it failed because maybe I learned things along the line that made other projects better in the future. Well, where do you go from the perfect model? It's all downhill from there. Mike Grinaldi is a friend of ours, and he's somebody that I've always looked up to. And he said something to us in our first interview that bothered me initially, but I've come to realize the wisdom in what he said. And what he said was, don't fall in love with your work. 
And I think what he's saying is don't get so hung up on that Armahabi wildcat that's in front of you that it has to be absolutely perfect that you lose focus of A, what the hobby is for, and B, this is a journey. You're not going to arrive at the destination, so enjoy the pathway there. And as I, as we said in our last podcast, there is no wrong way to do this hobby as long as you're enjoying what you're doing, as long as you're growing, as long as you're having a good time. That's why we go to the model store and we spend all this money and, and we do we invest all of this time because we enjoy it, right? So I, I agree with that, that, that comment that Mike said about not falling in love with your work and using that as a buffer against being too hard on yourself. I think it's also a buffer at the other end. Don't do something. And this is a, this is a classic human failing. I did that. It's fantastic. And I think that's, you know, we have to, we have to land in the middle, right? You have to be, while you're in the process, you have to be critically honest of what you're doing, that just because you did something doesn't make it fantastic. At the same time, you have to insulate yourself at the other end, that it's not the end of the world if you don't do it right, right? And, you know, I, I tend to, to take that to heart sort of at the, at the end of, of not being too in love with my work because, you know, I don't. You know, I don't want to insulate myself from criticism. That sometimes makes it harder to accept criticism if if that's what you're doing. You know, looking at everything you did and said that's the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, you need to be honest while you're while you're doing it. Once it's done and on the shelf, you can love it as much as you want, as far as I'm concerned, right? And move on to the next kit and appreciate it for what it was. But in that moment, I I tend to use that as you know to be to remind myself that I need to be honest with what I'm doing. Well, Lutrom says, uh, you know, what do you do when you build a perfect model? Because it's all downhill from there. We had a, one of our early interviews was with uh, John Bias, a YouTuber and fantastic sci-fi modeler. And he said, when I build the perfect model, then I'm done. I'm going to put all the tools away and I'm not going to build anything else. Because, <laughs> because it, what, what's the point then? And I think, I think they're right. I don't think there is a perfect model. There's always something when I build a kit that I'm going to do better than on the last one. I'm going to, I'm going to improve in some area, but I'm never going to get it perfect. I just, I just always want to make it just a little bit better than, than before. I think this is where I sometimes feel like I sound like the hippie. Cause you know, what is the point of doing this if it isn't fun? I think we need to just focus on fun and enjoyment and to be totally honest, hanging with our friends, because that's one of the best parts of the hobby. And just have a good time and not take it so serious. You know, there's nothing life or death about what we're doing. If I screw up a model, you know, it's it's a few dollars worth of plastic. And 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 maybe, you know, this is me being privileged. But if I screw up a $50 kit, I'm not going to starve. I'm not going to, you know, lose anything. And I might learn something along the way, too. Imagine that. So I think we can't be chasing the dragon of perfection. It's not going to get us anywhere. One of the things a friend of mine and I have been talking about is doing a little bit of a experiment to take the same kit and build it three times. So I was thinking of the uh, a T6, the Academy family. He was thinking of some Folk Wolves by Edward and approaching the kit three different ways and having three different goals with each of the builds. And what his thought process is, if you build a kit three times, you're at least going to get one you like, which is probably true. But the first one, you know, my first one is just finish. And then my second one will be experiment with natural metal. And my third one, well, it's a Harvard. So I'm trying to get a, get a nice yellow finish. 
and just focus on these. Now, one of the things with this project that I want to do is set myself kind of artificial time limits so it doesn't go on forever. That's just something I was thinking. But I think there is some some usefulness in trying the idea of seeing where it takes us and seeing how the models will differ. And will you learn something over the journey? Will the third model be the best? Will the first model be the best? Will there be pieces you like of all of them? And what does that teach you about your modeling? My only problem is stop my um, obsession with the aircraft taking over and not finishing any of them. But I like the idea of just trying to approach the same kid in different ways to see how the outcomes vary or are we kind of set in how we do this? And one thing that would maybe be interesting, and I'm not sure I do this on a T6, but if you're building, you know, a Hellcat, one factory finish, one all beat up, you know, one super detail that gives you some ability to try different things in the same arena and see how they turn out. I think to echo Jim's Jim's comment, what I was going to say is I, I used to golf a fair bit and I remember... I'm pretty certain it was Tiger Woods who, you know, became great and unbeatable. And then he changed everything or close to everything. And everybody said, how can you possibly do that? Right. You're, you're the best golf in the world. How can you go back to basics and redo everything? And he did it and he won again. And then I think he did, a, whether it was by that point, whether it was in response to injury or, or whatnot, I don't remember, but he did it again. So the only, I mean, the only, Thing you can do if you ever get to such a point that you don't think you can take your specific skills any further, and I'd love to meet that person when they get there, is like Jim said, to basically go back and challenge yourself to do it again, but differently. Don't fall into the same habits. Don't fall into the same techniques. Uh, you know, if, if you've been an oil, somebody who's used oils to weather something all the way along, and I think this is somewhere that, that Martin Kovacs is, is really interesting in is I'm sure if Martin was building for himself, he'd have a pretty set routine. I mean, I'm guessing, but I find he's really challenging himself to put different uh, mediums and materials together, different techniques, you know, just because he knows how he could chip something one way and maybe happy to spend 80 hours doing it. It's not stopped him from going out and finding a, a second way to do it and a third way. And from the perspective of education, that is so valuable to somebody who doesn't want to do it his way. Now he's going out and finding different ways that people, and and we can hopefully get away from this idea that weathering is a cut and paste process. I do this and I do this and I do this and I do this. Oh, wait a second. There's also that. That actually works better for me because I can do this. And we can start getting away from kits and builds that all look the same and kits and builds that I think are maybe challenging people to do things that they're not comfortable doing and ultimately ending up with better builds as a result of it. To use your uh, rush analogy, it's Neil Peart. You know, he got to a point in his career with rush where he was pretty much universally lauded worldwide as the best drummer on the planet. So what did he do? He completely tore his methods down, went and studied with a drum master and got better. A jazz drum master and changed his grip on the right hand to a jazz grip. Which I and think he I, used I, for six years. Not that any of us are Neil Peart, but I mean, it, I think it speaks to what we're all talking about. Is It's a great point. Except for Jim. Sorry, Jim. <laughs> okay. Uh, Chris's question, we're going to start with you. Uh, recently, there's been a number of real innovations in aircraft model kits. You know, new kits like 
to me is F4 Phantom and their P38 Lightning. You know, manufacturers like Edward that seem to be really constantly improving, and even new uh, manufacturers like Armahabi and Clearprop. So, which aspects of these new kits do you think have improved the most in the last few years? For me, the ones that have improved the most are the areas of construction and ease of fit. So the engineering of the kit itself, uh, these things now go together almost like butter. I know the F4, I haven't built the F14, the Tamiya F14, but I know that one uh, just by reputation. I have built the um, Tamiya Tony and the Tamiya Lightning. And it's just, when you have a kit that goes together like that, even if you're an, I tell people, if you're an armor builder or Navy guy, whatever, when it's that much of a pleasure to actually construct this thing and it's just smooth and you get all the way to that finishing element, it is, it's, uh, it's almost like self-inspiration to get that thing going. So I think that's the biggest thing that's happened in the last few years. I would say the same thing. I think that it, what amazes me to take this subtly differently is to me, it's been around forever and there is just something special of that to me, a box, but it literally blows me away that we've had these companies, Arma, we've had these companies, Clearprop, who have just come out of nowhere and done amazing kits. Because like I remember when Edward started, or more so Special Hobby, the difference between their products today and what they were when they started. And it's just been amazing to watch these companies come. You know, Arma, in my opinion, went from a no, from a company that didn't exist to one of the best 72nd scale manufacturers out there. And Clearprop's not far behind. And just to come out of the gate and blow everybody out of the water um, has been impressive. And I don't want to—I don't want to um, upset uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Chris here, but Airfix had has probably not hit the level Arma hit out of the gate, and they've been around forever. Um, it's pretty impressive. In se- certainly in one seventy second scale, I'd have to echo what both Chris and Jim have said. I mean, we're we're building kits that fall together. We're building kits that if you habitually swipe a couple of mating services, because that's what you used to do, you're throwing fit out of alignment and out of yeah. whack. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think in one seventy second scale, the other difference is we're just continuing to see kits that we probably never thought we would have seen, right? We're seeing variants. We're seeing entire new, new toolings of, of stuff that is sometimes out of left field. I mean, clear prop is another great example. I mean, they're, their pipeline is, is is generally stuff that you know the the E1B tracer is a good example, right? Uh, about a year ago, I think they announced a, a Super Felon helicopter. The Sky Shark was another one, and there's a fourth one that I, um, you know, there's a Frogfoot coming at some point. Like, we're not getting a lot of the bog standard kits. We're not getting these companies saying, "Well, we need a 109 because we need a 109 to bankroll everything else." We're seeing companies do things building kits that are off the mainstream and and that's their pipeline that's their thing i think the other thing is molding quality we're just seeing molding quality continuing to improve both in 172nd and in one even in 148th like that mini base su33 apparently is just the new benchmark for what what's been molded in plastic and frankly that is enough to get my uh to, to get me to pick up a heathen scale kit <laughs> once it comes out with the musket uh, musket missile. I, I totally agree with what's been said. Um, along with the uh, engineering and the fit is the parts breakdown. So many companies are getting very good at giving us kits that will fit in such a way that you can eliminate a, a seam just by putting it on a panel line. 
and it, it's been done a lot in the past, but I think I think we're seeing more and more that are doing that. Just just they're just a lot better at it now than they were before. Actually, to in counterpoint to that, Doug, I think we're also seeing smarter decisions about that because sometimes the panel line is not always the best place. And I think we're seeing place we're seeing decisions being made where where joints are sometimes put in the middle of of big panels where they're easy to deal with. Uh, because what can sometimes happen with a panel line? If you glue a panel line snug, then you've basically got to go back and rescribe that. You know, so you're right. I think we're we are seeing we're I think it's we're seeing smarter decisions being made about how the breakdowns happen, and we're seeing kits we're seeing kits that they're they're adding a lot of variance without compromising the fit by having to change different panels in and out. Yeah, as opposed to those Hasegawa P40s that were you know molded modular. Um, so that they could do a million variants, but they did a terrible job. Exactly, and 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 also where they're putting the sprue attachment points, like they're putting the sprue attachment points. Jim and I were talking about this last night on mating surfaces that you're going to glue together, rather than on the leading edge of that wing or someplace where you're going to have to really deal with something that could mar your plastic. That's now kind of been rendered moot by the exactly. way they're putting those attachment points on. And have you seen just how small the sprue attachment points have gotten? Yes. Compared to those those ones that were, you know, an eighth of an inch and, <laughs> and just left a nasty booger on your on your your kit somewhere. They're just so For much those better. of you at home, Chris just made a gesture showing exactly how big they used to be. So <laughs> that's why we all laugh. John, what about you? Well, I, I can only echo what other people have said that, you know, the, the molding technology has increased the fidelity of scale and especially the thinness of edges. I, I'm not an engineer, so I may get this term wrong, but I think it's a slide molding process that allows three-dimensional molding, like hollowing out exhausts and things like that. Just convenient and modeler-centric molding, like molding separate hubs for the wheels, something the modelers really, you know, would benefit from. And then the other half of it, or the other the other thing that people were talking about, was expanding the array of models that are available in high-quality kits that'll do two things. One is that people who like the obscure and esoteric stuff, like I do, um, one of my primary interests is trainers of World War II, primary trainers. You know, there's a lot of dragon slaying going on if you're going to build some primary trainers. But... We've seen come out just recently, ICM with their 132nd scale, Stearman and Tiger Moth and uh, Lucru 131. You know, these are all primary trainers that are in, you know, high quality kits. And you see it in 72nd scale as well. And 48th scale, I'm not so familiar with. But also esoteric things like Arma coming out with their PZL7, 7A. Uh, The kit I have of the PZL 7A, you know, there's more flash than parts. Um, and the cleanup process will take longer than the painting process. But this one's a beautiful kit right out of the box. And I think it'll also um, promote or or at least entice more really high-quality builders to start going into more esoteric subjects um, because the kits are there. And um, they don't have to, you know, use up so much time just cleaning up to try to make a really decent kit out of something that's more esoteric. And I know that um, Scott's waiting for his um, his ideal, you know, Tamiya boomerang to come out. <laughs> Forty-eight. Yes. Scale. Yes. <laughs> so another thing, you know, talking about engineering, um, John, is the way that transparencies are being molded. How thin 
that they yeah. are. And then also Tamiya and others that are not just putting a windscreen that you plop on the top of the windshield, but actually integrating that into the fuselage, you know, things that are making the transparencies of our models more scale thickness. You can see through them. They're distortion free. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, what I wish is the companies would learn to put the masks in the kit instead of making them buy them extra. And I was thought about that because I recently did reviews for the Sword TBM uh, or TBF, sorry, and the Special Hobby Harbored. And the only thing missing from those two kits was canopy masks. Like otherwise, they had everything in there. Now, I do have to agree. I agree with what Luft said earlier. The metal pedo tubes, too. Those are nice. I wish they'd give us more of those as well. But canopy masks, please, people. Well, I think that's the other area that I'd say I've been really impressed with what's been coming out as, as far as kits go. Is is And Arma is, is again, one of the, the leaders in this, is, is different uh, boxings of kits. So you've got your basic straight plastic. I don't know. Maybe they put masks in or not. And then you've got the the advanced or the expert kits. So if you want extra photo etch, if you want extra masking, if you want rosin parts, um, you know you have options. And I know that's that doesn't necessarily make it easy as easy from the manufacturer's perspective, but it makes it certainly makes it easier from a modeler's perspective. You know, and that's where ClearProp has been really great because you have all the photo etch you need. You know, I think in their Claude kit you had the extra rosin bits. Uh, if I if I'm remembering the right crit, kit, so. You know, you've, you're not having to go and chase down a whole bunch of extra stuff to do a better than average build, right? Certainly, you could go and chase parts until the you know until you run out of money. But you know, to build something that's cool and has even better scale fidelity because it's got some included photo etch and masks and whatnot, you know, that's the other area that I've been really happy to see that come along because it just makes life easier. All right, last question. We're gonna gonna give you an easy one here. What do you think the future of aircraft modeling kits is going to look like? Uh, where are we going to be in 10 or 15 years? I sometimes wonder whether we'll sit here in 10 or 15 years and wonder if Hazagawa is ever going to retool any of the 25-year-old or 30-year-old kits that they're still selling. Most of them now is UAVs. So I think that'll be a point of conversation. You know, Aside from that, nobody's talked about 3D modeling yet or, or 3D printing. You know, I think that will be... I think we'll see more change in accessories probably for the advanced model you know i think i think if you're content to stick with plastic out of the box yes we might see we might eventually see masks thrown in you know or or other little things like that but i think if you're an advanced model that's where you're going to start seeing differences you know temp models out of, like there's a lot of great stuff happening out of russia with res kit and temp model and uh there's a, another one doing pilot figures now ask ask something so i think that's i think the sharp end is just going to keep getting sharper uh it's going to keep pushing out new aftermarket parts that you know will do a great job of of replacing kit parts that are still coming up a bit short but by and large i I think i think a conversation in 10 or 15 years about the the fundamentals will will still be pretty similar well um i agree with the um, 3d printing as especially with accessories and aftermarket parts uh, I can imagine just it's, it'll shift from uh, ordering them through various um, vendors to just simply downloading them and producing them. I don't really see that as entire kits yet, although I might be might be wrong on that, depending on how much the 3D printers uh, you know kind of take off. The main thing I'm kind of concerned about, I guess, is I hope that the model building community and the airplane model building community in particular 
doesn't follow the same road as model railroading, where things get so expensive that it really shuts out people who want to do it casually or kids or anything else. That's why I'm so encouraged by Airfix, even though they may not be the most tightly molded, most detailed molded of all the kits, they're extremely affordable. And they seem to have a, um, a conscious effort to keep them affordable. And I'm really pleased to see that direction happening. So people who want to enter the hobby at whatever age um, have some entry-level kits available to them uh, that don't make them shy away and don't make it such a huge investment for them. Well, I think, and this isn't quite an answer to your question, but in 10 years, each of us will have our own line of paint and weathering products per modeler, everybody. That's that's what it feels like we're headed to. I, I think it's mostly we're going to see the rise. It's going to be interesting to me. Are we going to see another company like Wingnuts that shows up and just revolutionizes aircraft modeling? Um, are we, you know, are we going to see a new player come in that does something new with injection molding? I, I, I think my problem is I can't predict the future. I wish I had that crystal ball. I'd be richer. Um, but I'm excited to see how the envelope will be pushed going forward. And, you know, if we were talking 20 years ago, I don't think anybody could have foreseen that 132nd scale World War One would become such a subgenre. And then Wingnuts came out with these amazing kits. And, Maybe there's something new down the road with that. Um, I just am looking forward to see what we're going to have. I think 3D printing is going to make a big deal. And honestly, I, I all I ask Airfix is, could we find a better plastic? That's all I want from them. I don't know what we will see, but here's what I hope to see. In terms of engineering, if you walk up to an airplane and you put your hand across that that wing or that, uh, that fuselage, it is not uniform. There are lapped joints. There are different surface levels that you're going to see. I think that in 10 years time, we're going to see actual plastic. I think we're starting to see it now, but I think it's going to be standard fare to open a box and see uh, a kit with actual lapped um, leveled surface plastic that you're going to be able to see even at that small 70 second scale, 40 second scale. I, I take your point with the clear parts, but I think there's a lot of room for improvement with clear parts and making them easier to work with, make them even thinner, maybe even a different material. I don't know. And what I'm really hoping is two other things. One, decals, decals, whatever we're going to call them, we really need to improve this 100-year-old technology to something that's a lot better, a lot easier, maybe a whole different way of putting those things on. I don't know what that technology would be, and that's not what people pay me for, but I hope that there's something different down the line with that. And I really want a very good Ultimate Corsair. So if anyone's listening out there, a 48-scale F4U4 Corsair with all those beautiful lap joints and everything like that, boy, I'd like to see that within the next 10 years. With regards to the decals, all hail, Brother Chris. Well, gentlemen, uh, this has been a great discussion. I really appreciate your time. Hope you've had as much fun as I have. I've appreciated each of your perspectives and your responses on these questions. Hope to have all of you back uh, in some regard, uh, you know, on the posse uh, again. So thanks again. Chris, uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much, Scott. This was a lot of fun. Chris, too. Luftraum, thanks for joining us. It's been a blast. Thanks, Scott. It's been a real pleasure to be part of it. Doug, thanks a lot, buddy. No problem. I think I'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) 
John, looking forward to hanging with you pretty soon. Thanks for coming. Me too. Thanks for the invite. Looking forward to hanging out with you and Doug. Jim, you mad genius. Thanks for helping me put this thing together and uh, appreciated talking to you. No problem. Thanks for having me. And I'm just going to leave us on a note to make the Canadians sad. I'll see all the rest of you in Vegas. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Ouch. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Take care, everybody. Thanks. Bye. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed that, and uh, that about wraps it up for episode 26. Thanks, as always, for spending your time with the posse, whether it's at at your bench, in your car, or wherever you can listen. Remember, there's no wrong way to do this hobby as long as you're having fun. Go grab one of those unfinished projects, maybe a new kit that's been calling your name, and get working on it. What are you waiting for? This hobby is awesome. You can leave us feedback about this or any other episodes of our show over at our Plastic Posse Facebook page, or you can email us at plasticpossepodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our Posse supporters once again and give another shout out to our awesome sponsors, Tank Craft, Just Looks Better on Your Bench, and Sean's Custom Model Tools, makers of the awesome Super Sanding Blocks. Like TJ said, there is no wrong way to enjoy your hobby. Keep those benches busy, your air brushes, moving paint, and most of all, have fun. Thanks as always for joining us for this episode of the Triple P. The Posse drops new episodes every two weeks, and you can find the Plastic Posse wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to enter our drawing for a set of super sanding blocks by emailing us at plasticpossepodcast at gmail.com. Again, we'll announce the winner not next time in episode 27, but after Nats in episode 28. And by the way, if you are at Nats, make sure you come and see us. We'll have a table. We're going to do some giveaways, have some fun stuff there. We also will have some equipment with us and do some recordings. Anyway, so yes, stop by and see us. We would love to put names to faces and meet you guys in person, see your work, and, and just say hi. Guys, this is usually where we say, I'll see you in two weeks. But exactly two weeks from the day this episode drops, we will all literally be in Vegas. So I really will see you guys in two weeks. One last announcement. Our next show, episode 27, is going to be a celebration of our one-year anniversary as a podcast. We're going to feature some special guests. We will also be bringing you our most awesome roundtable segment to date. We were lucky enough to be joined by three great friends who also happen to be three of our most popular guests that we've had on the Posse as well. Adam Wilder, Martin Kovach, a.k.a. Uncle Night Shift, and Mike Rinaldi of Rinaldi Studio Press joined us to talk with each other and to talk with us about armor modeling, friendship, and many other topics. So you're not going to want to miss that. In the meantime, we're super excited to meet many of you at the IPMS Nationals in Las Vegas. So to all of you in the posse out there, and guys, to each one of you, thanks for another great episode and also for one amazing year. I guess there's only one thing left to say. Yeehaw! Yeah! That was good. That was good. good. That was good.
Well, I can tell you this. The Chicago Cubs are dead to me. They traded Rizzo. Oh, but they traded Rizzo. <laughs> I know nobody cares. I know nobody. Like, I'm like one of three people in the posse that cares. But <sighs> So have you guys seen the Dune trailer too? Of course. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, that thing is so epic. I was excited before, but, you know, seeing the new footage and seeing how Denis Villeneuve has captured the beauty of, of the desert. I mean, I'm, ju- I'm just beyond stoked. It's going to be so amazing. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of his work. Sicario is awesome. Probably one of the best crime thrillers. I guess you call it a crime thriller of the 20, 21st century. And Arrival is just fantastic science fiction-ish, I guess. Uh, through and through, just a great movie. Those, uh, two of, those two movies he's done are two of my favorite. Like They're they're up there when I think about movies I really like. So I'm convinced that it's going to be good no matter what. You know, I know Dune has a reputation for being hard to you know translate to film or, or that kind of uh, media but i don't know I, I like i was telling you guys before like it makes me want to finish reading the books because yeah much as i like the setting and in the story and all the stuff about it and the fact that dune heavily inspired two of my favorite science fiction uh, properties star wars and in warhammer Forty Thousand. I, I just I couldn't get into the book I, and i felt bad because i wanted i wanted to and part of it might have just been me and I just finished reading a, you know, like a 1500 page book about George Washington. So I was kind of burnt out. I immediately went into Dune and I was like, I just got to stop, stop reading, which kids don't, don't stop reading. Don't, don't listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. yeah, it makes me want to read it. What I, I mean, I have the book it's sitting on my nightstand. I still have the bookmark in it. I remember everything that I've read so far. So yeah, I, I would like to finish the book before I go see the movie, but I will my ass will be in a seat in an IMAX theater because we have one near where I live watching that movie the weekend it comes out because that movie looks like it looks like it's just made for IMAX. Like, oh, totally. Oh, screen. yeah. I was I was 14 when the original Dune movie came out in 1984. And and I really liked it at the time. I've seen it since. And and not the best storytelling. Um, it doesn't flow well, but I am super stoked for this movie. It looks beautiful. It's well cast. And just the fact that they're taking the time, I think, to do this one, to, to do it justice, uh, it's going to be epic. I'm really stoked for it. Yeah. And TJ, going back to what you were saying about Denis' work, you left out Blade Runner 2049. And if you think about what he did on that, he made a sequel to a film that was almost 30 years prior. That was already perfect, by the y- way. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. And, and he was able to not only to pull it off, but to seamlessly integrate it, make it seem like an old friend and actually expand the world that, you know, usually a sequel just sort of hopes to follow on to the story a little bit of the first movie. But he actually expanded the Blade Blade Runner world and, and it just did an amazing job. It's one of my, you know, Blade Runner is my favorite science fiction film of all time. I mean, it's just it was such an important film. And I didn't mention it because I'm afraid to uh- not afraid. I'm ashamed to say I've not seen Blade Runner 2049, and I don't. I don't have a good reason. I really don't because I love Blade. I love the original Blade Runner, and I do. That was the first movie I bought on Blu-ray, which was the director's cut. Yeah, which is awesome, and I love Blade Runner. I love Ryan. Go- yeah, it was Ryan Gosling, right? He's in that. Yeah, yeah. I love Ryan Gosling and Princess Buttercup. Right. She was in it. 
yeah, I don't know. I don't. I honestly, I'm sorry. I don't have a good excuse for why I haven't watched 2049. All of the all of the effects and everything that you get with a sci-fi film aside, the amazing Hans Zimmer uh, soundtrack, all that stuff aside, uh, the great casting, Dave Bautista's in the film. All of that stuff aside, you need to see the film just to see the way that Denis directs Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford together. Because, you know, there's always that little bit of element of, is Harrison Ford human or could he be a replicant? And Ryan Gosling is a Blade Runner, but he is a replicant. And it's just watching the subtle way that dialogue is exchanged and the scenes are played between those guys, TJ, it's... mm. It's it's so it's so good. It's not it, it's not going to smack you in the face, but after you watch it, you're going to be like, oh wow, yeah, well well done. Well, see, here's the thing. I know it's good, and that's why it's even more inexcusable that I have not watched it. Like, I don't doubt that it's amazing because everyone I know that's seen it has said that it's amazing. And uh, the one the one one of the other podcasts I listen to, not related to scale, Molly Nerd Soup that's all about like pop culture and, and movies and comic books and video games stuff. They all love 2049 and have consistently listed as one of the best movies of the last 10 years. If not ever, they love that movie. All, all the hosts. So like, I, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like an idiot. Like I don't, I don't have a reason, but that aside, dude's going to freaking rule and I can't wait for it. And it, I don't know. It's just going to be, it's, Oh my God, it's going to be so good. Like I, I got the heart palpitations watching that trailer. It, it was, it, oh man, it was good. <laughs> I was like, oh man. And I thought the first trailer was cool too, with the, like the big sandworm, like, you know, like essentially bowing to fall and everything. I like, <laughs> I was like, wow, that's awesome. It's a good sandworm. But this one was like, uh, I don't even know. It looks so good. The way that they've done the teeth on the sandworm, it, it, it's gone from something in, in the old dude film that Doug talked about as being kind of cheesy to something that legitimately looks real. I mean, the th- you, you look at all the teeth and the way that they're shaped and how many there are. Just Except I, I, I can't help but think every time I hear sandworm, I just think of the sandworms from Beetlejuice at the end. <laughs> or Tremors. <laughs> or, yeah. Tremors. Yeah. or Tremors. Tremors. <laughs> I love that. I love the Tremors movies. Oh, Tremors is a, is a classic. It is, it is a classic, a B-movie classic. I want to say... I had to have been like in ninth grade and we had HBO typically did not have the premium channels, but for some reason there for a while we had HBO and I was just watching TV one, one weekend and trimmers came on. I'm like, what the hell is trimmers? So this was all, you know, pre Wikipedia. So I was like, Oh, this looks okay. Cool. It's like got Kevin Bacon. And I, I like Kevin Bacon. And uh, I watched it. I was like, man, this movie is awesome. <laughs> and then, uh, then I got like the sequels. I think I think at that time there might have only been the the two. I, I think at one point I had them, I had all the movies on VHS because I was like, man, I really like these movies. 